Serum Visions is a Magic the Gathering podcast about iterative brewing. Each episode, we work on a project, a deck, strategy, or archetype that we think has room for exploration and brew to the fringes of competitive deck building. In this episode, we check in on the prison brews from last episode, talk about some fun or interesting prison interactions we found that show potential, and discuss possible changes to our lists. We'll circle back to Project Urza again for a quick check-in on a list Brian has had some success with before diving into uh, deeper into the prison archetype by brewing up some hate bears and taxes lists. Have a sip of your Blink Moth tonic and open your third eye. This is Serum Visions. Welcome to episode four of the Serum Visions podcast, coming to you from within a ghostly prison wrapped in a suppression field. I am one of your hosts, Brian Madden. Joining me on the line is the only man known to have tamed the Lotus Cobra and lived to tell the tale, Arun Singh. How are you, Arun? I'm doing very well. You know, I'm slowly, I'm slowly coming to accept that summer is over and we have fall now. Because I understand why some people really like fall. I'm personally, summer is my favorite and fall makes me a little sad. Just because, you know, we're losing warm weather and long days and going to cold weather and short days. But with the changing of the seasons comes new fruit. And now apples are in season. And apples, while they're not quite as good as peaches, they're still quite excellent. And yeah, I have some plans to make some deep fried apple pie later today. Uh, and I'm very excited for that. That sounds amazing. I have an apple tree in my yard, and I had about 30 or 40 good-looking apples on there, and I went out to check on them one morning, only to find I had no apples left. Uh, apparently, <laughs> they were all stolen by animals in the middle of the night, so I have to uh, just be jealous of your deep-fried apple pie, and uh, I guess if I need apples, I'll have to buy them from the store this year. Oh yeah, yeah, no, all you have to do, just come down for whenever we can start gathering again, in addition to magicking. Come down for the next Grand Prix Portland, hopefully, and I can make some deep fried apple pie. I did once already, I kind of messed it up, it was still good. It's a very technical recipe, but this time I feel very confident that, you know, doing something the second time is always easier. But next time, when if you're able to come down, you know, we can definitely serve some up for you. It's quite good. I look forward to it. Also joining us on the line is a man recently banned from Standard, Historic, and Brawl for having a win rate greater than 100%. He is the locus of creation, Zach Ryle. How are you, Zach? I'm feeling pretty good. I mean, uh, historic-wise, I believe the terminology for the moment is suspended. Uh, <laughs> there's still a chance. There's still a chance for me in historic. Hopefully, you know, the format adjusts to hate on my many colors, my coat of many colors that I have here. Uh, yeah, we're, we're definitely rolling into the fall season, and uh, while I'm not much of a tea drinker, uh, I gotta tell you, something that's amazingly easy to make is uh, Earl Grey infused gin, mm. which goes in an Earl Grey martini, which is just about a fabulous, uh, most fabulous beverage I've ever created. Uh, I, I, I did a little sip taste of it, and my god, I've created something that is just... Uh, unreal here with inspiration from uh the the current golden age of cocktail makery 
So uh, if you're interested in something that's surprisingly easy put to get to put together, uh, look up Earl Grey Martini online, uh, and you will uh, find the, the the recipe. It's pretty easy to put together. Whereas uh, I'm currently trying to crack uh, a peanut butter jelly cocktail, and that's proving oh, to be a lot more whoa. difficult. It turns out it's a it's a lot more difficult to infuse uh, peanut butter into vodka. Oh, you know, I would have I would have guessed that. Yeah, yeah. It turns out it turns out tea that's like meant to be steeped in something, no problem. Peanut butter, not yeah. not traditionally so much known for being uh, just left in liquid <laughs> to infuse its uh, oily, buttery flavor. So uh, definitely, uh, definitely got to crack that one. But uh, apparently, the process just takes a lot more time than I've been giving it. It's it's like a full week long thing that you got to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep us posted. That sounds pretty delicious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm trying to be uh, trying to be modernistic with uh, all the uh, all the explorations of things that I'm doing for the moment, and uh, and uh, exploring local liquors with which to uh, to infuse. And speaking of modernistic, I think we can uh, segue into the wonderful uh, modern metagame that we have been uh, presented with over the last little while. Uh, because I think it's even more diverse and wonderful, although I have heard dissenting opinions uh, on that. Uh, the uh, wonderful streamer with whom I was uh, sort of, I don't know, uh, most friendly uh, in terms of numbers, view numbers, uh, friendly rival, uh, Zanman1414 came back a little bit this week and it expressed some, uh, some frustration with the format for, uh, as far as I can tell, for just being modern. So uh, I don't know if you guys uh, match with this, but uh, he was basically saying everyone just wants to kill you and win the game as fast as possible or sit back and interact. Um, I don't know that that's any different than modern has ever been. Um, I mean, if so, here's here's my question. If you don't want to sit back and interact and you don't want to win the game as fast as possible, what is your deck trying to do? Like, what is the category that doesn't fit in there? Right, so I think the general idea was, and I don't know why he got fixated on this, but he was saying, like, nobody cares about the combat step. And I just think that's not true. Um, it depends on Absolutely the matchups. Not. It depends on the matchups. But if you've ever seen something like humans versus taxes, um, the, um, the Scourge Death Shadows deck, uh, versus, um, let's see, what else we got here? Uh, Eldrazi Tron, let's say. Those matchups, they really do come down to the, the combat phase. And even Titan, um, depending on how fast it comes out swinging, I mean, if you have the ability to slow them down a little bit so that their Field of the Dead is is popping off at a reasonable pace instead of, like, you know, 12 zombies, um, th again, the combat step and the combat math can be 100% relevant right now so um i don't think it's it's a hundred percent polarized um but modern has always been a format which is pr pretty much like that I, I like even back in the day when i was playing grixis control you'd you'd put in these main deck fatal pushes because they're they're important in the matchups where you need them and but in the matchups where you don't they're they're completely dead like you play against people who have just zero creatures you know and they're just trying to combo kill you. um and, and that is one of the things that I think keeps the format uh, interesting and exciting is that you have things like creatures with static effects, uh, like taxing effects, that can be very powerful, <laughs> uh, that we're going to get to later. And, uh, and the creature removal uh, isn't that useful against uh, creatureless combo or control decks. You know, um, Brian, you got something? 
Uh, I'm a little surprised, I guess, to hear that that's the criticism is the the combat step because you know I think typically we hear people complaining that uh, modern is a format of ships passing in the night, right? And it's like the the more interaction there is, uh, the better that modern usually is. And I think with that usually comes some amount of aggro decks to sort of balance, you know, tip the scales you kind of have both extremes. So um, if the criticism is that, you know, you've got a lot of aggro decks and you have a lot of highly interactive decks, that actually sounds like exactly where we want to be. And I think that uh, a lot of the, um, you know, deck lists we've been seeing pop up kind of, uh, you know, shows that. Like we're seeing a lot of turn week after week. Uh, we're going to dive in here to some of the, the more recent challenge results, but you know the cha challenges have looked pretty different week over week, and uh, I think that's a, a good indication of health right there. And even and even day to day. So um, because we we had uh, two modern challenges on the last weekend. Now in theory, there's one going. Is there one going right now? There probably is one going right now, or it may have been. I um, think so. It may have some uh, tough. Um, numbers because eternal weekend is on right now so if anyone is interested in legacy there are some amazing streamers um showing off uh their unbelievable talent in the legacy format so um lynn chalice n-y-l-y-n-n is uh one of my good real life friends and of course uh strifo chase strifo hansen i uh truly truly i like both of these guys and they're both streaming uh the legacy um weekend events they were playing in yesterday and uh, i'm sure if they're playing again today they will be uh, streaming that as well so uh, check those guys out on twitch they're awesome um but uh if these modern challenges have launched i'm sure we'll get to uh, see those results but anyway last weekend we had uh two modern challenges that almost could not have looked differently in their breakdown of the the top eight top 16 um so on the saturday it was uh won by death and taxes mono white again um, so Death and Tax is consistently coming in the top, absolute top tier in Modern right now. Um, but Death and Tax is followed by second place Jund, third place Black Red Scourge of the Skyclave's uh, Death Shadow, fourth place Burn, um, fifth place Humans, uh, shout out to uh, another local, Jacob uh, Richer, um, sixth place Sultai Uro, so no Omnaths in sight there, seventh place Mono Blue Tron. What? Yeah, and eighth place, Bant Spirits. Again, Bant Spirits popping up. And I even listed everything all the way down to 16th place because um, this it just keeps being very diverse. We've got the, the green-white um, Heliod all combos deck in ninth place. Uh, another Taxes list in 10th. Um, there's a Naya Creatures Titan Lands Toolbox deck. It's sort of the evolution of the uh, Titan Vial deck. 12th place, we've got uh, Oops All Spells. 13th, uh, Death and Taxes, uh, I think this is the black-white. Um, yep, yeah, I think it's the black-white one. 14th, a totally unique take on black-red mid-range. This is basically like Mardu Pyromancer without white. Um, 5th place, Orzhov Stoneblade. And 6th place, Ice Nine on his signature uh, Ponza deck. Red-white mid-range Ponza deck. So, like, th this... I mean, there's there's very few linear decks here, and I feel like everyone's really interacting both on the board and with each other's permanents um, for the most part, you know? Um, so, yeah, and definitely looks like a tough uh, road to hoe for um, Tron, 
and Titan decks in general, but they're still appearing in some numbers. So I don't know. It's like perfectly diverse, really. Yeah, it's definitely kind of wild just looking, you know, the top 16. I think, you know, like at least for this one, there might you might have to go down to number 13. Or actually, I think it's taxes, but like other than taxes, I think pretty much everything else is just like a one-up in the top 16, which is kind of nuts. And, you know, that's how I've been feeling. Like in, I jump into the queues and, you know, you can face anything. It's crazy. Like the I little, uh, kind of going back to the attack step, I... I, I don't know. I feel like the attack step is pretty important. Definitely, I've been. I kind of revisited Project Mentor a little, little sneak peek. But I was using the attack step a lot with my mentor tokens, and it felt really good. Faced a whole bunch of taxes decks, and you know, lots of combat there. The first deck when I jumped into my league was that silly blue red as foretold balance nonsense, and you know, just like you run into that nonsense, and I got steamrolled. Uh, and I, I mean, they drew like the perfects and lined up very well against my draw. I think. If we were you know, playing a matchup again, I think I could probably win it with slightly better draws. But just, I mean, I haven't seen that deck in forever. You pop into Modern, it's like turn one, Simeon Spirit Guide, Simeon Spirit Guide, Island as foretold, Ancestral Visions. And you're like, well, I was not prepared for this. And the funny thing is, you know, there are the Force of Negation decks ripping around that would have torn that opening to shreds. Um, but, uh, and they, they have to be wary of that. And we'll yep. definitely uh, mention that as we, we uh, get to our our prison topic. Um, that said, now we've got the Sunday challenge results. So uh, I think the breakaway story of the weekend was Canister's deck from this one, which took first place. This is the uh, Uro-Omnath cat combo deck. Um, it's basically a, a Jiggy Wiggy and my style deck. It has very little interaction except in the form of Planeswalkers. And it's literally all about powering stuff out and playing to the board. Um, and every, every card in the deck replaces itself with the uh, major difference that it's actually playing a way to win the game, <laughs> which is uh, Cat Combo, uh, that's Felidar Guardian, and Sahili Rai. So um, that was sort of, as far as I could tell, the breakout story of the weekend. Um, and since then, a lot of the prelims this week have featured one or two copies, uh, posting records at least 3-2 or higher. Um, some of them were 4-1s, no 5-0s so far. Um, I, I, you had a comment here... Uh, that you wrote down a ruin that said you, you think it might be a scourge of the format. I think it's definitely uh, a new player. You know, cat combo is one of those things that comes and goes in popularity. Sometimes it, it creeps way up there in terms of the viability. Um, usually when there's a gap in the metagame in terms of people being able to deal with it, um, similar to dredge, you know, and that's one of the wonderful things about modern having like 40 plus competitive archetypes is there's usually something that people are not prepared for and if you are willing to do the due diligence do your homework and really go deep on uh, what lists people are playing and what specific cards people are playing you might be able to catch people flat-footed with a with a combo that they're just totally unable to deal with and i think that's probably what canister did uh here innovating with uh, omnath i think this deck is pretty interesting i actually uh kind of came up with a brew pretty similar when omnath and everything first came out it was a yorion build and i think they might have like i know cory Baumeister was working on a Yorion build of it too, and I think it's been dropped for the 60 card version in which you still get to run uh, the, uh, Giganta as a companion. But the deck is, I mean, it's really fascinating because you're essentially, it's just 
playing it's just gaining life and putting permanence on the board and then your final combo just goes over the top of anything the other thing i think the thing that truly makes the deck shine you'll notice the let's now play four to fairy time raveler and that card is just insane in that deck as in terms of it prevents your opponent from interacting with you while you want to combo and honestly more importantly it deals with all the hate pieces like Pything needle or you know just like any other any other permanent based interaction you can just bounce with Teferi and then go off. The only actual answer to that deck is the Immortal Sun, funnily enough, because that shuts off all Planeswalker abilities, including Teferi's ability to bounce. But I've played, played the deck a couple times, and I mean, it, it happens uh, that they, they just kind of mope around, they don't get their combo. But if they're not drawing their combo, they're still drawing a bunch of cards. They probably got an Omnath, they're gaining a bunch of life. Once again, that deck abuses Renin 6. Uh, that is, uh, you know, always a fan of Renin 6. I always feel betrayed when I see a Renin 6 on the other side of the table. I feel like in 5-color Nib we really pioneered Renin 6 plus fetch land. Like that was definitely apart from Jund, but Jund, you know, Jund doesn't have a good big mana payoff. Jund hits their land drops to hit their land drops, and then they still play out. <laughs> oh Jund. Um yeah, and, and and it's it's also one of those things that this like this deck is just so uh other than the combo kill, it's so fair. Um in the way that's trying to play out. And the nice thing about Teferi is even the matchups where he's not messing with them in that way, um, Teferi can just bounce your Oath of Nyssa, uh, allowing you to keep digging for your combo uh, and drawing the extra cards. So, yeah, it's just, a, again, it, it's a classic uh, in the style of our Teamer song creation decks. It's just like a super powerful play-to-the-board deck. Um, this one is playing some interaction in the form of Path to Exile and Reband, but it's it's a very light amount, sort of kind of like uh, Blue-Red Storm has a bit of interaction to sometimes knock your opponent off balance and then uh, grab the game away from that point. Um, but this is, again, much more mid-rangey, much less combo focus, but with always that, that back pocket ability to go off. Um, now, the rest of this um, top eight is worth mentioning, if only to say this one does look, if, if you took it in a vacuum, if this was the only challenge of the weekend, maybe a little bit distressing. Um, because in second and third place and eighth place, you have the Blacklist um, Uro Omnath piles. So um, these are mostly the, the next sort of stage of evolution of the Sultai or Teamer Uro decks, um, or even sometimes four-color Uro decks, um, or Banter Uro decks. Um, these ones are bringing in two copies of Omnath in addition to everything else they're doing. It's just a good value uh, four-drop play. Um, and then in fourth place, we have uh, the white-green creature combo deck again. So this is obviously well-positioned right now uh, as it keeps popping up in these higher echelons of competitive magic. Then we have Miracles, Humans, and Belcher. So again, still pretty diverse. And then in, even in ninth place, there's Ad Nauseam. There was at least one other in this league or in this um, challenge. There was uh, Etron in 10th, Neobrand in 11th, and uh, Amulet Titan in 12th. So again, uh, just a broad representation of uh, the competitive decks that we've seen from the last several years uh, of Modern in, in this spot. Uh, Brian? Do you, do you guys remember when they banned Arkham's Astrolabe because Uro was too easy to cast in uh, three and four color decks? I mean, I don't know if that was the only reason that they banned Astrolabe, but I do know <laughs> that, yeah, that, that those decks were definitely the reason that it did get banned. It wasn't the Niv-Mizzet decks, and it wasn't really the Urza decks. I mean, 
Urza, the Urza decks were part of Astrolabe being very highly played, um, as was Niv-Mizzet, but I think, yeah, it really was those piles. But I, I do think that um, as we get to our prison topic, um, the vulnerabilities of these decks are are more highlighted than they used to be with Astrolabe around. And I think that that first challenge we looked at, um, I don't know if, if it was just the, the people playing it were more ready um, for these kind of three and four color greedy piles. Um, you know, we, we, we don't have that data in front of us, but I will say that um, these decks are definitely more able to be foiled um, than they were at that time. Now, I'm not necessarily happy about Astralia being gone, but at least I can say that the, these decks are more attackable on their mana. And the, the, the success of taxes more recently is probably largely in part to the Astrolabe ban. And, and a lot of these other decks, Humans uh, is another one that's able to try, try to sort of pick, a, pick apart your hand and leave you with cards that you, you can't really cast functionally. And I think removing Astrolabe was probably uh, uh, helpful for them as well. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I do want to say that uh, these decks do lose heart to Blood Moon now. Like, they get trounced by Blood Moon. And in my own experiences, I'm messing with these five-color decks. You know, and before, with Astrolabe, I actually didn't really care about Blood Moon because you just fetch, like, two basics in Astrolabe and you don't give a, you don't, you just don't care. It's amazing. But now, unfortunately, uh, you know, like, you fetch all your, not like, you fetch your basics out and then you're, you don't have your good, you don't have all your colors. And then you don't fetch your basics and they blood moon you and you lose. But I, I also, on the topic of Astrolabe, I did mess around a little bit with uh, Kinnon Shells and Legacy, uh, especially with Omnath, because, I mean, you give me Kinnon and Chrome, like Chromox and printing Omnath, that sounds sweet to me. Like, damn, that sounds nice. Uh, and honestly, Astrolabe is a messed up card. Like, I was playing it in Legacy, it's just like Prismatic Vista, fetch Snow Covered Island, play Astrolabe, you've got like a forest in your hand. And, you know, like with a couple, with like a mox or two, and it's like, wow, you know, like my mana is going to be totally perfect and nothing can touch it. And that felt great. But it also is like, you know, if this card feels pretty at home in Legacy, I mean, it breaks my heart that we don't have it in Modern, but I'm, I'm upset about it, but I understand that we should probably not have these toys. But I, I think it also, this, this also touches on a, a bigger um, delta between Legacy and Modern. Um, and, and I've always seen this as one of the biggest differences in these formats. It's not Ponder and Brainstorm. It's not Force of Will. No, I think one of the biggest deltas between these two formats is going fetch into Dual Land. Because let me tell you something. For playing three and four color piles, fetch into Dual Land instead of fetch into Shock is a huge difference against any aggressive deck or especially <laughs> Burn. Now, Burn has been my nightmare nemesis matchup for the entire time I've been playing Modern. And why? Because I always want to play Greedy 3, 4, and 5-color <laughs> decks. And you have to fetch Shock if you're playing Modern. Um, I mean, that's just part of the deal, is people are trying to kill you fast, and you need to be able to interact with them early. But it means you're taking a bunch of extra damage. If you're taking a bunch of extra damage, that Boros Charm is going to kill you. Um, whereas in Legacy... Over the course of the game, you're only going to take one to three points of damage from your mana base on average, unless you're playing Ancient Tomb, and Ancient Tomb is a whole other beast. But for these three and four color decks, you're not taking as much damage from your mana as a baseline. Astrolabe was not as necessary in that format, because that format already had things like Wasteland and Rashadi Import that locked down any kind of land. 
and they already had things like Back to Basics, and they still have things like Blood Moon. So they had motivation for playing um, basic lands, but a lot less. And I think if you if you look at a lot of um, legacy that's been played over time, there's just a lot more people being very comfortable to play out nothing but non-basic lands for the entire opening of their game, or they'll fetch into one or two basics at first just to avoid getting wastelanded, um, which is a totally different animal than uh, than modern, and it's a totally different animal. Now, not to say that Astrolabe has had no effect, but one of the things that was a big deal in Modern is that you were able to fetch multiple basics, essentially reducing the amount of damage you were taking by four to six over the course of an early game, if you had an Astrolabe, uh, to fix your mana. And at the same time, you had Uro in there, which was incidentally gaining you life. So um, all of a sudden, what was a very well-established truth about Modern, which is that um, aggressive decks could count on you either forcing yourself to go slowly to conserve your life total or shocking yourself repeatedly, which reduced your overall life total, making it easier for them to close the gap and kill you. Um, all of a sudden that, that deal was gone and the control decks and the mid range decks that were playing multiple colors got a bit of a, a gimme in terms of uh, being able to play just all the best cards. Um, and turns out that a pile of all the best cards, if you're not getting punished uh, in some way can be the best thing you could be doing. So uh, I, I, the, these formats have now been a little bit more returned to uh, the, the balance that they had before. Uh, I know in Legacy, the um, snow piles were very frustrating for people for a while, but I think they have, uh, it, it's been found that they are actually relatively well balanced within the overall uh, environment. Well, and they have something new to hate on because Rick is uh, legal there. Right? So. <laughs> Well, I, I don't want to touch that with a uh, four-foot zombie-killing baseball bat. Yeah, I got, yeah. I got no, no horse in that race. I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, uh, well, I mean, if anyone wants my opinions on it, I mean, I, I had problems with the Godzilla cards, so this is just the next evolution of that. Um, I love altars. I'm fully in support of people getting altars, but those are unique and you have to put a lot of work in um, versus, you know, the, the company just putting out these things into the magic world that are, you know, clearly just out of place. And uh, and just for aesthetic reasons, I mean, there obviously there's other issues coming up with this uh, Walking Dead Secret Lair thing that, that we're not going to go into here. But just aesthetically, I, I wish magic would just stay magic. And, and even for me, I mean, I have problems with the current aesthetic with the overly photorealistic art that they've uh, they've actually kind of uh, corrected a little bit, and there's actually a really nice diversity of aesthetic right now. Uh, I think they've found some wonderful, wonderful new artists in uh, Zendikar Rising. But anywho, um, so we've waxed uh, poetic about the format. You guys feeling good about modern generally? I mean, I've been totally rejuvenated over the last little while. So um, uh, whatever naysayers are out there, feel free to naysay at me. But I think modern is is in a really healthy, great place for the moment. We'll see how long that lasts. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. You know, I've enjoyed it. You run into a whole bunch of randoms in the queues. You like, I think one of the defining parts about modern is you can jump into a league and you'll face, you know, black-red goblins, and then you'll face blue-red restore balance, and you'll face an Omnath pile, you might get death and taxes, then you get this totally left field, you know, like maybe mono-red prison, and you, you just never know what you're gonna get, and which is can be frustrating, because 
You know, sometimes you run into Amulet twice a league, you're like, man, I hate that deck. I'm gonna add like Aether Gust and Ashok to my sideboard. And then you run into like no Titan deck. And you're just like, well, great. But once again, you know, I think that's the beauty of modern is you, you jump in and you don't know what you're gonna get. Yeah, I would echo that sentiment. Um, I think one of the, the hallmarks of a, a healthy format for me is that I can take a brew and go, you know, two, three or three, two, um, with something that's maybe even a little bit rough because the fact that the field is so wide. Uh, whereas, you know, if I try and do the same thing in Pioneer, like the lists need to be so much better tuned because the the metagame is a little bit narrower. And I think that it's a little bit harder to break into those narrow metagames because it's like all of the, the clearly best decks have sort of coalesced. Whereas there's just a, a much wider band of playable. And I, I really like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, all, all, all there's enough cards for very, very powerful synergies as well as just like a pile of good cards, just being able to stand up. And uh, almost every deck has, you know, an 80, 20 or 90, 10 matchup lurking out there waiting to uh, get matched against you twice in a single league, no matter how popular that deck is on uh, any posted metagame share. So, uh, yes. Yeah. All right, so let's uh, let's head back into the lockup and check out our results on Project Prison. Sounds good. So uh, I guess I'll kick us off here. I most recently played a league of the Turbo Arayo prison deck that oh, yeah. uh, Rune brewed up. I ended up going 2-3, but there were a lot of really close games in there. I, I thought the deck was super fun, um, but it did feel like I was frequently mulling down to like four or five every game. Um, I often would have hands that were like a couple of lands, a springleaf drum, um, you know, like a mox amber or some other zero CMC artifact, and then like nothing to do with it really. So I would have been pretty reliant on top decking any sort of gas or, or you know, anything like that. Um, the times that I did have a start with an Arayo, even if it wasn't something where I could clearly flip it on turn two, I was usually able to draw into those pieces. And so I found that the, the flipping of Arayo actually happened pretty frequently. And when it worked, it was awesome. Um, you know, I, I had some opponents that like clearly they saw the Arayo flip and just sat there like watching their clock go down for a little while while they considered what they could do about it or like how they were going to play around it. Um, and I kind of appreciate the fact that like you can actually play around it. You know, there's enough cheap spells floating around in modern that it wasn't like I completely prevented the opponent from playing the game. <laughs> you know, if you think to prison locks like... Karn and Mycosynth Lattice. That is one of those rare locks where like once it comes down, there's really nothing that you're gonna do to get out of it unless you have the interaction at the moment that they cast the spell, right? Like if you had um, you know, something like an Assassin's Trophy, you could float your mana before it landed, wait for it to resolve, cast your Assassin's Trophy to get rid of it. But outside of interactions like that, you were pretty much locked out of the game. Um, similarly, you know, you have like Teferi knowledge pool and things like that. And while I enjoy that, I know that my opponent isn't enjoying that. 
And I know that my opponents probably did not enjoy facing down Arayo, but at least they had play there. It wasn't an auto concede. <laughs> um, so I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, so yeah. No, yeah, I, uh, I I took it out and it was it was a blast and a half, and uh, I totally echo your sentiment of like it was there was a lot of cool tension where you you'd have these turns where you you could go for the Arrayo flip and they'd have one mana open you'd be like well they could have Fatal Push or Lavadart but I'm not gonna win this game by not going for it and uh, sometimes they haven't sometimes <laughs> they don't. Um, uh, Jiggy has a comment here later and I'll, I'll throw it over to him for a second uh, once I'm done here because uh, he's clearly the expert on this deck but um, it was a very interesting deck to play because I had some games where I could on turn 3 I, I just played nothing by the time I got to my turn 3 uh, my opponent didn't really know what I was doing I was just playing blue green lands out and they, they didn't really see what was coming um, and sometimes it wouldn't be clear exactly what my game plan would be for my opening hand, and I just have to have a little faith. Because what this deck needs to do sometimes is just wait for a couple of card draws, wait for an opening, and when your opponent taps down, you go, okay, here's my Arreo, and I flipped it. Um, which, as we mentioned before, with a zero mana artifact and a repeal, is actually pretty easy to do. Uh, you cast your Arreo for two mana, you play your zero mana artifact, you bounce it with repeal for one mana, and then you replay it. It doesn't even need to be a mox. Uh, you can just do it with an engineered explosives or the Mistress Baubles, and uh, all of a sudden you have this flipped Arreo out of nowhere. And even in game two or three, you can sometimes do that to your opponent who's just not expecting you to be able to pull that off. Um, so it definitely gets uh, uh, some points from being sneaky. Um, on the flip side, there are games where just, you know, you're playing against Jund and you have Uro, and if they're not if they're not set up in a particularly aggressive hand, if they're not able to totally um, take you apart, Uro just makes that matchup uh, uh, pretty easy. Um, but, but I still did lose games, so this is one of the sort of most balanced and interesting uh, decks I've taken into a league where it feels powerful and it still has a grindy angle, but I never felt like I was totally going to win, even if I flipped an Areo, because Abrupt Decay is a card that people play, and that just wrecks you. So, um, <laughs> Arun, the expert on Areo, take, take us through your thought process, the evolution of your leagues, and uh, where you think we could go in the future with that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very happy that both of you uh, got to play this deck. You know, I think... I kind of mentioned, so I'm going to go over the list right now just because it's pretty quick. You get Giganta as a companion because, you know, you have a whole bunch of mana and often have nothing to do with it. The creatures are pretty simple. Four Arayo, four Kinnon, four Emery, four Uro, four Karn the Great Crater as your Planeswalkers, three Ancient Stirrings, four Repeal, four EE, four Bobble, four Mox Ember, three Drums, and then 19 lands. And you're straight blue-green, which means your mana base is amazing. I don't know if... It, most people don't really play just like fair two mana two color mana bases i think the biggest two color deck right now might be the blue white shark blade that aspiring spike uh, seems to play a lot but it's amazing you know just being able to always have your colors not have to worry about blood moon fetch basics first for painlessness you even get sweet land like sweet uh, utility lands like for instance i always have to play minama school at water's edge which can, when you have your four and five color piles, that can actually really hurt. But in this deck, it fits right in. Three waterlogged groves, you know, hits your colors, great for flooding out. Uh, so, yeah, I, I love two, two color decks are very, a very nice treat. 
especially when you're used to playing greedy four and five color piles that kind of live and die by a lot of things. But that's the deck, it's pretty basic. But the previous iteration I had of this actually essentially splashed white and instead of Karn, the great creator, it played Monastery Mentor as kind of your lock come out uh, and then get a mentor, cast three spells and you just kind of win. Which was okay and it worked well, but uh, when you know when you and Brian mentioned last or last episode, oh, you should add Karn to it. I was like, ding, 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 ding. There we go. And yeah, so I think Karn is amazing in the deck. It is an insane upgrade to Mentor. Not only uh, do you get to go down to two colors, but the big thing with Karn is that you know Mentor. You still have to draw other cards in order to make Mentor a good card. Like you can you can lock him up with Arayo. Uh, you can cast Mentor, and then you might top deck an Arayo into a land, and you know you're not you're not doing so hot. Like, yeah, you've got him locked on Arayo, but you have a one-one and a kind of a puny board, and then eventually they can just get through the lock because Modern is filled with busted cards. But if you go Arayo into Karn, you know the one nice thing about Arayo is that it essentially makes all your spells uncounterable because their first spell on your turn will be countered. Uh, so it gives you a window to invest four mana into Karn and then also, you know, like I think I misplayed a lot. The other thing this deck kind of made me realize is that Karn is a very difficult card to play. It's especially difficult if you choose to make it one of the centerpieces of your deck. Like where, you know, this deck's new goal, like the main goal is Arayo into Karn into win. And as secondary and synergy pieces you have Uro, Emery, and Kinnon. But for the most part, you know, you're, you're banking on that Karn. And you, like, you get down Karn with an Arayo. Do I want to grab Trinisphere? Do I want to grab Damping Spirit? Do I want to grab Liquid Metal Coating? You know, you just have so many options. And I definitely, you know, I think the Wishboard is very important. I definitely misbuilt the Wishboard a number of times. And I also punted, you know, like sometimes I think the deck just needs Trinisphere. And I think Trinisphere should essentially, even before Liquid Metal Coating, unless you're against like Tron or something that where you're going to be in serious trouble, I think Damping, I think Trinisphere is actually the best card to wish for because you get that down and now they essentially have to have six mana available in order to resolve a single spell. And unless they're on some kind of mana deck like Amulet would go in nuts or Tron, they're probably not going to have it. So I actually, I think one in the first league i didn't have transfer i was like oh i'll add damping sphere because it kind of does the same thing and it's one mana cheaper and it hits big mana and i actually lost three games because i couldn't uh wish for my trinisphere which would have been perfect and then you know they have the perfects to punish me when when i played the league with it and i don't i think this is the one i played off stream because i was against ad nauseum and uh my misclick was I wished for something that wasn't the Trinisphere and I was trying to wish for the Trinisphere and they wouldn't have been able to go <laughs> off next turn and I would have won that and, and the league would have been a 4-1, but it ended up being a 3-2 being a because I, I couldn't get the Trinisphere. Um, and that said, though, uh, I think I remember Trinisphere being one of the cards that I wanted to, to cut from the sideboard to make room for uh, things like Mystical Dispute or, or what have you. So I will say that, like, I, I have just found Karn to be one of the most fascinating cards in modern um, for for decks that are not Eldrazi Tron, although I think it is great in Eldrazi Tron. Um, it's just one of the most interesting things you can be playing in the, in, the, in the Swiss army knife nature of the card. And, I mean, to your point, I mean, you're saying like, oh, yeah, 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 Trinity were better than Damage Sphere. But Damage Sphere, when you're against uh, Tron, either E or Green, 
um, is just hugely useful. Um, and there's very few other uh, hate pieces as effective uh, against certain matchups. So it's just, oh, it's so cool. I mean, we, we, could, we could be iterating on Karn decks uh, until this podcast goes off the air of the heat death of the universe. So um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I just loved all of these different ones. And I know actually you have more Karn exploration coming up here. Oh yeah, but to get back briefly, I do want to say about the, all the mulligans, etc. I think something else with that, you just kind of have to pray. You know, you keep, you keep the fluff hands because you're, you're essentially your critical mass deck, kind of like Burn, where you know, Burn doesn't want to mulligan because and most of, pretty much every one of their cards deals three damage. So every mulligan is you know, like, you can't really mulligan aggressively because every mulligan, you know, you kind of lose your critical mass. And this is the same, where if you mulligan to five, now it's going to be infinitely more hard, even if you have the Arayo in hand, like you multiply to find Arayo. Congratulations, you've got Arayo, but you're down, you know, maybe two zero CMC artifacts or two other spells, or maybe you have to put back a second Arayo where you want to bait with the first one to get a Lava Dart out or something. So I do, and I know it feels kind of funny keeping, keeping the fluffiest of hands, but this is, this is, a lot of my decks are top of the deck decks, and you know, I kind of like that. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, had, uh, I had some hands where you'd have like, Three lands, Uro, a Bobble, an Emery, and you know something else where you're just like, this isn't going anywhere yet. But in a broad um, sense of modern matchups, I, I think uh, you know you have to think about: Am I on the play? Am I on the draw? Uh, if it's game one, are you totally in the blind uh, on what your opponent's on? And uh, yeah, you just gotta you just gotta pray sometimes because some, sometimes you are only one card away from having an exceptional opening. Um, so you just gotta just gotta go with it, and um, you know if we were to stick with this deck for a long time and track the total results, we'd be able to maybe find a, a more definitive um, win rate. And that's one of the things that, that keeps Magic so fascinating is that we have to we have to make some intuitive leaps on what we think is good based on a little bit of intuition. Uh, and I think this deck definitely has a lot of promise. Um, and, uh, and so anyone who's willing to get out there and try it, give us some more data, please do so, because uh, it's definitely, definitely got a lot of promise. I, I will say I um, was usually pretty happy keeping a hand with an engineered explosives in the blind and just leading with an EE on one. It is really impressive how many decks, yep. that, how many decks that can just completely hose. You like <laughs> a lot of ether vials out there. Yeah, ether vials, you know, soul scar mages, that kind of stuff. It's like they commit their first thing to the board, and then the next turn, you're like, well, I'm just gonna leave my two mana up and see what you do. And then they don't play anything and like attack with their one creature. And then the next turn, you're like, all right, well, I got a little extra mana. I'll commit something to the board, and then I'll hold up my two mana again. And you realize. Oh, they have a handful of one drops, and they can't commit because I just have this EE. Yeah, <laughs> the, uh, the Soulscar Mage decks in particular. I mean, almost all of them are packed full of one drop creatures, so it really, really does mess with them uh, wonderfully well. Um, Aether Vial, you kind of want to take out immediately. Utopia Sprawl, you want to take out immediately. But all of these cases, it's fine to lead on an EE on one on turn one. Mm-hmm. And then also reduce your Emery in price, and yeah, oh yeah. You know, maybe you can even turn like. Just the other thing I like about I love about this deck is you can drop your EE for a zero, power out your Emery, and then repeal your EE to draw a card. And then set and it then, up for you know, a different like now, Yeah, set it up yep, for a different charge. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Very nice. 
It is. So yeah, EE. I've always, in these lists, I've started exploring EE and all my cannon shells. And I never leave home without two in the main deck. But this deck, is this one especially, because you need, you want to A, a flip, or you want to A, flip Arayo, B, get Emery down ASAP. Uh, with those two things combined. And then also you have your appeals. Like four EE is absolutely the right number in, these, in this shell, at least. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, for sure. Especially for powering uh, the flip on... Um, on uh on Areo. Uh, although we did have the idea of trying out a version with uh, Ancient Stirrings, which I, I don't think either of us got to. Um, but uh, that's, yeah. that's explorations. Yeah, exploration definitely um, primed for the future there. Um, so now if you're ready, I know you had uh, more Karn explorations and I really liked playing this deck, but uh, tell me a little bit about playing Omnath and Karn because Canister was making waves playing Omnath with Sahili Rai combo. But you and uh, somebody else have uh, managed to do something with Omnath and Karn. Oh yeah, so this is, I've always had this idea kind of floating around in the back of my head. And, and a couple, like a long time ago, I was messing with Lotus, Cobra, and Renin 6. Uh, which is a sweet and fun engine, because then you just kind of go nuts with all your mana. And also Uro, Renin 6, Uro, and uh, uh, yeah, and Fetchlands, uh, you just kind of... And loves Cobra. You just go nuts because then Cobra turns Uro into just like free rolling your Uro and getting an. Ex it, it's just nuts. But there's never been a really good payoff for this shell until dum da dum dum. Our good buddy Omnath comes around and decides that they, you know, they just they were bored being Temer and they added White to become more degenerate. And so I messed with so I was messing a little bit with Omnath just in some other shells. And I realized that his landfall, his second landfall trigger is like kind of disgusting. It's for, you generate for mana, and if you're able to, if you're able to get Omnath's trigger, the turn that you get Omnath, it's essentially a four mana mana rock that cantrips on ETB, which is, you know, that's obviously busted. And then, especially, you know, so you get Omnath down, you trigger his landfall, you play another card, uh, you've got a Renin 6, maybe a Lotus Cobra, you get a fetch land back. The next turn, you're untapping and you've got 4 plus mana in addition to whatever how much mana you have. And you can just do some silly things. So this shell that I started with, and this is kind of the... I'll, I'll list the current iteration. I don't know if this is right yet. Uh, probably not. But you get Gigant as a companion again. I'm on 3 Gilded Goose, 3 Kinnon, 4 Lotus Cobra, 3 Emery, 4 Oro, 4 Omnath. And then three Fey of Wishes, which this is a little spice. I'm, I'm not sure if this is right, but, you know, I found myself oftentimes you want, this deck really wanted Karn. And, you know, what's the way to play more Karn? Essentially, maybe some Fey of Wishes. Uh, for Planeswalkers, you get four Ren and three Karns. Your artifacts are two Bobble, or four Bobble, four Amber, two Drum, and 20 Lands. And, yeah, this deck, I mean... It's a ramp deck. Interestingly enough, I think I've only posted this to our chat and then also the Sunny Days Discord because they're kind of funny people and they, they've affectionately termed these piles as jiggy piles because they just look like complete piles and I've been posting these cannon shells for a while. And I think actually Ben Jones must have picked it up from the Sunny Days Discord. Uh, ben Jones noted uh, British Shadow Expert and he, uh, I guess, took in some leagues and he posted two back-to-back 5-0s on Twitter I'm making some very, very minor changes, but saying that he really liked the deck and it was cool, interesting, and fun. And, you know, it just plays like a ramp deck where your goal is to 
just ramp and get a whole bunch of mana and then ideally you resolve a Karn and then you wish for something big and then you just kind of go from there. I think it's funny that uh, you you mentioned that these are termed jiggy piles because I actually got messaged by um, host of the dive down, Shane, asking Maybe. if that uh, posted list was <laughs> in fact uh, our creation. Uh, he was like, I saw this list and it looked like the type of thing that you guys would do. And I was like, oh, yep, that, that's, <laughs> sure enough, that's a jiggy pile. So uh, apparently your your deck fingerprint has made it out there enough that, that people can yes. tell. Well, and yeah, yeah, that is, you know, We owe it exciting. all to Mox Tantalite. Yeah, I, who would have thought <laughs> that these all started? Cause... The fifth, the fifth uh... beetle. Like, the num my number one regret in life is the first time I took out that Kinnan Temer Wurza, like the Kinnan Temer Oroza shell. Is that I with four mox tent light and over spring leaf drums? I wound up three twoing, but my I started off the league three zero, and my losses were to Dice Factory, which I totally punted, and then actually I punted twice against Dice Factory because I'm that good, and then I punted game three against the Eldrazi Tron. So it was three two, but it easily could have been five zero. And if I had made that five zero, it would have been published with the four tantalite, oh. and that would have been like. Glorious, but oh. unfortunately, ah, uh, breaks my heart. And now I'm, I mean, I I want to put Tantalite back so bad, but I just, I just can't do it, man. I just cannot do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's good to know that uh, people are starting to identify your your signature cards. Um, oh yeah, and then it's exciting. Did you touch on this Chalice version as well? Uh, yeah, and so this version, I, I took to a couple 4-1s and 3-2s, and I think a 2-3 and a 1-4. It was, you know, it's fun and enjoyable, but you get to do busted things. Like, you sometimes I've had, like, 13, 14 mana available on turn 4, which is, you know, makes Tron look like nothing, which is pretty wild and very fun. Uh, but the big kind of issue I was having with the deck is, once again, fast aggro just goes totally under this deck. You know, you need a while to set up. And even, you know, to get your Uros and your Omnaths down for stalling, you still need your Cobras to survive and your Kinnons to survive. And with all of that, there were definitely the small decks going fast under you. Just couldn't really do anything. And the other issue was that if the deck didn't draw Karn, you know, I mean, it could stall for a little bit, but you needed Karn. Like, if you have a whole bunch of mana, you don't really have much to do with it. The, but the, the other sweet thing about this deck, actually, though, is that your Kinnon, you have a lot of mana, and your Kinnon activations are really good. Like, Kinnon hitting Omnath is nuts. Yeah. I mean, you're actually paying 7 mana, but it's uncounterable. It comes in, it draws you a card, you do it at the end of turn, it gains haste. Uh, essentially, it, you know, it was pretty sweet. And so, I kind of messed with this, so I thought, and also, in honor of Prison Week, you know, yeah, sure, Karn is a prison card, but what's the real prison card? And the real prison card is Chalice of the Void. Zach and my oh, semi-favorite card, definitely up there. <laughs> Very fun. Uh, well, fun for us, not fun for the opponents. And so I kind of cut all the one-drops. I cut the Gilded Goose and the Fae of Wishes uh, in this case, and then also the drums. I think a couple other small cards, but I added four S Simeon Spirit Guides and four Chalice of the Voids. And I took this version out to happy but mixed results. I think I got a 4-1, a 3-2, and a 2-3. Um, it was interesting. Chalice didn't fix as many of the issues as I thought it would. I think one of the things I totally forget playing Chalice is just how swingy it is and just a very high variance card in general. 
where even there's this one match against Jund where game one I have turn one chalice of the void I want on the play and you know the rest of my hand is still really solid and I get going and doing my things but I wind up losing that game in a super close squeaker because it was it was very grindy of course but in 24 cards that the Jund player had drawn and like used they didn't hit a single one drop so chalice of the void you know, it was essentially, it was dead for me. And it was, uh, you know, I spent, a, I spent a card to get it down. I spent the Chalice of the Void, and it didn't counter a single spell. Uh, so essentially three for one myself. I'm well aware that the, you know, the chances of this happening are very low, but it does happen. And when it happens, it's a little sad. The other kind of thing that's interesting about Chalice of the Void was, you know, I thought, oh, it's going to be great against this Black Red Shadow deck because they have all these one drops. And it definitely helps, but they can still get down a Scourge. And if you, you know, if you're unable to get your stuff down quick, uh, or if you're not able to gain life fast enough, their scourge is just gonna beat you down while you kind of flounder. So that was, and I think it'd be interesting to have a longer discussion, especially considering this is prison, uh, Project Prison, is just how good is Chalice of the Void right now? Because it was definitely, you know, sometimes it was good and sometimes it was sweet. Uh, but also, you know, like I, for instance, I played against Storm and I managed to get a Chalice on two down, which wrecks their whole strategy but I kind of you know with all the fluff I couldn't quite close out the game and what wound up happening is that they were able to gifts for repeal and past in flames and they were able to flashback past in flames to repeal my chalice and then just go off uh, and so stuff like that and I don't know it felt like I remember in the Eldrazi stomping days when I played Chalice, Chalice felt, you know, you could mulligan to five and go turn one Chalice and you would, there was a good chance that you were probably winning that match still. But it did, it did not feel nearly the same. I do want to mention that Simeon Spirit Guide was nuts. You know, that, that card is fun. Like turn one, fetch into Ren and Six, that's just nasty. Like your Ren and Six will be at really high loyalty. It'll be out of bolt and attack range. It's just getting you, picking you up a card every turn. That's sweet. The other thing I really liked is, you know, just helping to get Omnath down one turn earlier, like, you know, covering that red, uh, getting Omnath down one turn earlier, maybe that and gives you, maybe that saves you the landfall trigger, so then you can trigger it with a fetch the turn it comes into play, or maybe that just means dropping Omnath turn two, you know, totally reasonable, totally reasonable. And so I loved Omnath, and also, yeah, Omnath is just busted, you know, it's nuts, just untapping and just being, oh, like, I'm just going to free roll this Omnath, add four mana into Karn, like grab Wish for Liquid Metal Coating, cast Liquid Metal Coating. It's pretty nuts, but, you know, I enjoy it. I enjoy the deck and it was fun. I don't know how much more I'm going to pursue this list for a little bit, mostly because it just has a very, when you start to build your decks around Karn, they just get much more linear than a lot of other decks. And so, you know, now this, this deck's whole goal is to kind of do busted things with mana. I mean, it is fun because you get Lotus Cobra and Uro, and it's, it's, a very, it's a very unique busted things and cool sequences that you don't get in other lists. But, you know, your end goal, you always want to then that Omnath, cast Karn, and wish for, you know, like two, three big wishes, and the game is over. And, you know, that's fun, but it feels very, very similar all throughout the time. So for me personally, you know, I think this is interesting. I don't think the Chalice list is worth it. I think you might just want to, you know, maybe add Utopia Sprawls and just kind of... I do think I would like to keep Simeon Spirit Guides, but maybe switch out Chalice for Utopia Sprawls. Because in that case, anytime you would have uh, SSG plus a Chalice, now you have SSG plus a Sprawl, and that does equal a turn to Omnath if you've got an Omnath in hand. And just so things like that. 
Uh, but like I mentioned, you know, if, I'm curious to hear what your both of your thoughts are on this list. But for me personally, you know, especially kind of hinted, uh, I got the project mentor bug again. Uh, so gonna go down that route a little bit, and also the hate bears. But I think this shell is interesting and definitely can be explored a little bit more, which I'll likely get to far down the road. So I have uh, uh, my explorations of four different decks here, which I'm going to blow through real quick, because obviously we, we did a lot of work on this episode. Um, so as I mentioned <laughs> last time, I have my red-green lands seismic loam deck. Um, I did all right, 2-3 in that league. Um, although uh, throughout these four different lists I tested, uh, one of the things I will say is matchup variance was a huge factor for these decks. Um, so the Red Green Lands deck with Seismic Loam uh, didn't treat me too badly. I got a 2-3 overall, although I basically never saw any of my four copies of Blood Moon, though I did see multiple of my copies of Boil, especially against uh, poor Dryad of the Elysian Grove deck, um, where I boiled them multiple times in order to lock that matchup. But, um, so this, this, this deck is very much bent uh, to hose creature decks for the most part, and then has a little bit of game against some of the multicolored decks by playing Blood Moon, although I didn't get to see that much in this league. Um, then I played two different leagues of my Sonic Pyro deck. So for anyone who needs a quick refresher on this deck, this is basically the most accelerated, brutal prison deck you could possibly play because it's playing four copies of Simeon Spirit Guide and four copies of Chancellor of the Tangle. So both of those give you the option to have two mana on turn one, or if you draw them in combination, or if you draw them in combination with Rituals, you can have at least three or four mana on turn one. So you have the option of playing turn one Chalice, turn one Blood Moon, or even turn one Karn or Chandra Torch of Defiance. And Chandra Torch of Defiance, of course, can plus for two mana and allow you to also cast a Chalice. Yes, I did that during that one of those leagues, and yes, they conceded. Um, I think Sonic Pyro, one of the best things about this deck um, is how fast it plays through leagues because obviously you just you, you ask your opponent, do they have it or not um, on turn one? Or sometimes you have to ask yourself, do I have it or not? Because you mulligan down to four without finding a playable hand and uh, you're pretty much done from there because this deck does not have uh, the ability to really uh, recover from that situation. However, one of the really fascinating things this deck does is it's a litmus test for all the different prison pieces. So um, I'm going to get to some conclusions that I got to um, about the different prison cards in Modern right now, but this deck was kind of the most helpful on that axis. Um, so 2-3 in two different leagues with Sonic Pyro. Uh, I did play the Ice Nine Ponza deck. I believe I went 2-3 with that. That is on my stream. Um, so uh, Ice Nine is the well-known player for playing this red-white sort of Ponza land destruction deck. Um, went 5-2 in one of those uh, weekend challenges we were talking about. And this deck has a reasonable uh, level of popularity right now with other people picking up on uh, Ice Nine's existence. So that's cool. And then I even played um, some Lantern Prison. Uh, Abzan Lantern Prison, and uh, one of my other conclusions was um, was uh, highlighted uh, with this league <laughs> because this deck is playing four copies of Ensnaring Bridge in the main deck, um, and uh, so I got to try out that prison piece as a four of in the main deck. So I have a few conclusions here that I wonder if you guys have some takes on. So number one, uh, I think Blood Moon is the most effective lock piece in Modern. So um, 
in all the leagues I played here, when I had Blood Moons in the deck and then when I could cast an early Blood Moon, there was a very, very high number of games that were just non-games. My opponent would cast little to no spells. Um, <laughs> and uh, if, if they were lucky enough to have some number of basic lands, they were slowed down enough that I, I usually was okay. Uh, I did have some incredibly bad luck in one game where my opponent just had, it was like four basics by turn four. Uh, against my turn two blood moon they just they just had them uh, they didn't fetch they, oh yeah they fetched i remember one of this them, but the rest of them they just all had natural draws um so that is one of the things that can happen so just like matchup variance is part of magic um so it's just straight up variance um but i still think blood moon is probably the best uh, sort of haymaker lock piece that you can put down early or eat heck sometimes in the mid game against some of these decks um as a sideboard card it's probably great right now if you can uh, afford to play it yourself uh, number two, Ensnaring Bridge. I believe this is the second most effective piece. There's just so many creature decks um, that don't have a lot of reach um, uh, that I've been facing. Now, that said, um, one of the cards that's messing with both of these pieces and just prison decks in general right now is Skyclave Apparition. Skyclave Apparition out of the Taxes deck has just pushed it into an entirely new tier and this is, I think, one of the highest reasons we're seeing taxes being so effective right now is they now have this Swiss Army Knife creature that fits in the three-drop slot. And it used to be the case that this was like Flicker Wisp. And Flicker Wisp would take your lock piece off the board for a single turn. But the Skycove Apparition not only gets rid of your lock pieces permanently, but it's also in their deck to deal with Uros, which they need to be doing anyway. Um, so this thing is just unreal right now for anyone who uh does not remember it's one white white for a 2-2 flyer when it enters the battlefield they can exile a non-land permanent with converted mana cost four or less and if you manage to kill the skyclave apparition you don't get your permanent back you get an illusion token with power and toughness equal to the converted mana cost of that permanent in the case of chalice of the void that's zero um but relatively speaking having a 3-3 when what you wanted was your ensnaring bridge or your blood moon back is not going to be good enough uh, which brings me to uh, card number three here. Chalice, out of the uh, things that we think of as traditional lock pieces, as Jiggy Wiggy alluded to, is probably the weakest card on this list. Um, there's, there's two real reasons for that. One is the fact that the most effective time for it to come down is turn one, because then you can deny your opponent having uh, played even their first one drop. And in order to do that, you need to play some kind of all-in acceleration. Uh, you have to play something like Simeon Spirit Guide or Chancellor of the Tangle, or you just really have to distort your deck a little bit uh, in order to be, do be able to do that. Um, and one of the most popular cards that's just, it's just being played right now is Aether Vial. So that totally hoses your, your Chalice because they're just going to Aether Vial in all their creatures. And so not only are they going to get in any one drop that they do have in their hand still, but that they're just going to be able to keep doing that and the Aether Vial's in play now. Nothing you can do about it. It comes down too quick and they want to mull to that card anyway. Um, other cards that they might be mulliganing to are other one drops like Birds of Paradise or Noble Hierarch. And again, that your, your Chalice is only significant if you're on the play and you can accelerate it out. So that just makes it a bit of a tricky card to be playing right now, um, which I think only Etron is probably able to get away with just because of the nature of how Etron is working. Um, and then finally, Karn. Karn is not the most wonderful um, prison or lock piece on his own. There's not a lot of like Urza or artifact decks floating around where it's just like a great card, although it is decent against Etron and Greentron. 
Um, but what Karn is, is just this main deck way to wish for uh, different uh, hate pieces. So we've mentioned it before, we'll mention it again. I like this card a lot. Um, and it's, it's just interesting the way it works right now, because nothing that you can get is going to win you the game immediately, or in a large percentage of cases, there, there really isn't anything you can do. And it takes quite a bit of mana to do it all in one go. I mean, you need at least six or seven mana to get a powerful hate piece, and people are playing, in many cases, main deck ways to deal with it. Um, but it, it's still something you can do that is that is fantastic. So um, what, 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 do, what do we think about my conclusions here? Jiggy, you go first. So I just want to jump in because I know Brian has a lot to say on this too, and so I just want to get in because I only have a little to say. Uh, first of all, I love this analysis. I think it's you know wonderful that you played all these different archetypes and you really got to see you know which lock pieces are best. I mean, this kind of goes along with my experiences playing with and against these. I get wrecked by Blood Moon all the time, all the time, especially with that Astrolabe now. Which all my greedy piles is just like, grr. So I, I, I make sense that you would come to the conclusion that Blood Moon is the nuts. Uh, your point about Skyslave Apparition, absolutely agree. That card, I, I hate that card. I had some crazy grindy games against those. It's just like, exile your Uro, exile your Emery, exile your this, exile your that, exile your Karn, exile your this. Oh, but you're getting illusions, which are fine, but it's just, I want my Uro back, you know? Like, I don't want, I don't want this stupid illusion, and that's definitely... Yeah, you know, the fact that it hits all our, all our locked pieces, essentially, is pretty brutal. Uh, and then the other thing, I'm also very happy that we came to the same conclusion on Chalice. I thought I was a little crazy, because, you know, turn, Chalice is nuts. But it just felt very underwhelming, and I'm glad that it found, you found it also underwhelming, because now I feel like I'm not crazy. I think that Chalice is probably going to need to take a seat for a while in the meta game until, you know, we, we might need, like, something... It just might be one extra turn one enabler away from, you know, just maybe we need that rule of eight, where, you know, like, I, I play bad cards, I play crazy cards, but, like, I will not play Chancellor of the Tangle in a deck that's not Sonic Pyro. Yeah. You know? No matter how bad I want to challenge people, <laughs> I will not put that in my reasonable deck. Well, I, I think, I think what, what we need, actually, is for the rest of the metagame to compress around one cmc again which it's not yeah yep, um, yep. so there yeah. there are decks around like death shadow decks and um the the mono red deck from m hayashi or the uh even the black red clave deck i mean yeah the scares of the sky clave is still an issue but they just have a lot of one cmc cards and even ad nauseum gets really messed up um, by a chalice on one it just makes it much yep. slower for them to win the game um but the problem is those decks only make up like 10, 15, even 20% of the metagame. It's, it's not enough for playing four main deck chalices with the accelerants to be good enough. Now, mm. the number gets up higher, then yes, it becomes more worthwhile. Um, and uh, and so that's what you're looking for. You're looking for the rest of the metagame to, to align itself in a way where one CMC is more vulnerable. Um, now, let's hear these uh, long, long thoughts, um, hopefully well thought out. From uh, <laughs> from Brian, because I know you've got some good stuff here. Yeah, so I actually I agree on the chalice take. That was one of my big takeaways as well. Um, I didn't actually land on any particularly cohesive or like strong lists that I would endorse in any way, but I did play with a number of prison pieces in mostly red green shells. And part of the the move to red green is a 
um, because of the fact that I wanted to play Simeon Spirit Guide, so I wanted to be able to make use of that red mana in other ways. I think this comes back to uh, what Arun just said a minute ago, which is um, he feels like there needs to be that rule of eight, and I sort of took that same approach. I was thinking, if I'm going to play Simeon Spirit Guide, which is on its own just not a very good card, I want to have payoffs that I can, you know, turn one, run in six, turn one, chalice, things like that. And so I wanted to have that higher density of turn one plays. Um, and run in six felt like a really good thing to be doing there. Uh, but that said, I agree with the assessment. I don't think that modern is um, gelled enough around the one CMC slot to make it worthwhile. And I also feel like there's just not enough of the accelerants. Like, yeah, you're right, we could play Chancellor of the Tangle, but again, we're treading down this road where we're going all in on these accelerants. We don't necessarily have a, a good enough payoff. And so I felt like the consistency was a, a part of that as well. Um, I did not play Blood Moon, or at least I, I did play Blood Moon. I never had an opportunity to cast it. I, in particular, never had a, an opportunity to cast it early. And so um, I can't speak to that, but I can see how that would absolutely be true. I think that the cards I was most excited about were Trinisphere. Um, it actually felt like a better Chalice of the Void right now because it, it taxes you know, the one and two CMC slots. Um, and it seems like because there are a lot of two drops running around, just stalling them out for an extra turn was pretty good. And when you're playing it with Karn and liquid metal coating, and you can kind of do that mana denial angle, it just gets better and better. And so the lists where I wasn't playing Trinisphere, I often found myself wishing I had. And I was trying to come up with ways to get it out a little bit earlier, even because a turn one Trinisphere is just utterly backbreaking for a lot of decks. Um, I also played with Confounding Conundrum. Um, I played an Is It deck that was running Simeon Spirit Guide. My thought was I can either get a turn one Chalice or a turn one Conundrum. It turns out a turn one Conundrum on the play is actually pretty good. It means that your opponent doesn't get their turn one play. Uh, and then, you know, they crack their fetch on your turn or whatever. I was running some boomerangs. So I had some games where it was like, they cracked their fetch on my turn. I boomerang it back to hand. They're still back on lands. You know, it's like turn three before they have a single land down. Um, again, I didn't really come up with anything that I was like super sold on, but I think that confounding conundrum has some play, especially if we can figure out the other pieces to go with it. It may be the case that it's actually a better control card where it goes in a deck with things like cryptic command and other ways to bounce permanence to hand, but, uh, it was pretty sweet and I would definitely like to give it another go in some other shells. Yeah. My go-to would be to play, um, some boomerangs and eye of nowheres. Um, some Chalice of the Voids uh, to take advantage of going uh, for that early mana and um, and maybe playing the Narset and Wheels kind of cards. That was, yep, um, I had Narset so, in there. And Force of Negation, maybe some of the other pitch cards. Um, so, so riffing on that Days Undoing mono blue shell that existed a while back. Uh, yeah, that was kind of where it headed. Would be. Uh, I was also playing Ashiok so that even if... Even if you know you you got to activate one fetch land, you likely weren't activating any further fetch lands because I'd land an Ashiok and you were just kind of sitting there with fetches on the table. Yeah, I mean this is you know a sweet concept. I really I love the boomerang idea. I think that is really 
you know, I think this is something that we actually, I might want to explore more. Something I've also, you know, with this whole thing is thinking about Boomerang a lot recently, because Boomerang is also really good with Arayo, uh, because you can bounce their lands, you can bounce their permanents, and it'll be countered again. Turn one, drum, turn two, uh, uh, Kinnon means that you can tap for double blue and you can cast a Boomerang, which has always, you know, been pretty interesting to me, like, you know, kind of a nice, actually pretty amazing tempo play. And yeah, Trinosphere also, I think, Maybe we should be. Maybe I kind of wish I'd focus more on Trinisphere, like you said. It seems like a early Trinisphere can be absolutely backbreaking. But this is the shell sounds pretty sweet. You know, it's a it was a really a really cool idea. Yeah, I um I also tried out some other cards in there. I tried out some Valakit Exploration, and this isn't exactly a prison card, but my thought process here is that it pairs really well with Ensnaring Bridge, because one of the issues with Ensnaring Bridge is unless you're also playing Bottled Cloister. You may end up drawing too many cards. It's not actually preventing the opponent from attacking in. Uh, and so my goal here was to play a lot of cheap cards, dump my hand really early, get that ensnaring bridge down, and then utilize Valakit Exploration as a way to get a little bit of card advantage without actually putting those cards into my hand. Um, and I, I think that there is definitely going to be a home for this card somewhere. I don't know where it is yet. None of the decks that I played it in really uh, felt great, but I did really like that interaction between Ensnaring Bridge and, you know, it, it pretty regularly did three or four damage a turn to my opponent while also giving me the option to cast these three or four cards. And the fact that those cards then go to the graveyard um, I saw some, you know, I, I had a vision of a deck that was playing Goblin Engineer and um, other ways to recur stuff out of the graveyard. And like, you know, you get a bunch of artifacts in the graveyard and you bring them back with Goblin Engineer. I even jammed some servo schematics in there, which when it enters the battlefield creates a servo token. And when it goes to the graveyard, it creates a servo token. So I was trying to generate value by, you know, moving things in and out of the graveyard with the engineer, all well empty handed. And, um, you know, I it felt like there was the beginnings of something. It didn't quite get there. I don't know that Servo Schematic is actually a playable card. I'll keep trying. <laughs> um, but I, I just want to put the, the Valakit exploration idea out there, perhaps for uh, another time and a, a, another project. Um, so yeah, overall, I kind of feel like, uh, you know, what we touched on, that Chalice just isn't that great right now, and that it's both a combination of not um, having a metagame focused around one CMC spells, as well as uh, not quite having the consistency to get that turn one Chalice down every, every game. Um, you know, I think that these sorts of decks also really need a better catch-up mechanism, and that was sort of the problem, right? Like, if you get your turn one Chalice on the draw, and they already have that Aether Vial, like, you need that extra something to catch up. And so I was kind of feeling like maybe the better route to go is rather than trying to get a really early powerful play, you want to go for, like, a turn two or turn three many lock pieces so this kind of fits well with our idea this week of looking at the taxes and um, hate bears style decks because i think that like uh you know a single trinisphere plus one other little lock piece even if it's not um you know something super powerful like a blood moon uh having like the trinisphere and say an ether sworn canonist or a trinisphere and an arayo the two of those together you can play around them it's just incredibly incredibly difficult 
And so I, I kind of wonder if the Kinnon shells are the way to go because they really enable those turn two explosive plays or turn three explosive plays. And maybe rather than looking to cast one powerful spell on turn one or turn two, we should be looking to cast, you know, two or three high power, but not backbreaking spells on turn two or turn three. And the combination of that might be a little bit more effective. Yeah, I mean, uh, in in only one match that I've played with it so far, the uh, Karn slash Fey of Wishes deck seems to be able to do that, but the timeline is closer to turn three and turn four because the engine takes up a large part of the deck and the amount of mana that you need to go get the specific hate pieces um, is demanding enough that you, you do need to wait until three, turn three, turn four, and sort of in a fail case like turn five um, to be able to do that. That said, because of the the uh, the nature of what Fae of Wishes can do, or Karn, um, especially in Modern, a lot of the hate pieces you can get are just total game winners. So if your opponent's deck is firing on all cylinders, it may be too late, but uh, it also might be right on time to just completely shut down the game. So I, th I think that's d it definitely uh, is is uh, bears more experimentation because I think this is a good direction to go for this kind of thing. Um, and it definitely feels like modern is the right way to do it. Cool. So I'm also going to very quickly touch on uh, Project Urza again briefly. Um, I played another iteration of the Grixis Turbo Urza that I talked about last time. Um, this one, I dove a little bit deeper on the Serum Visions and cut some of the main deck interaction. The big changes were that I cut one of the Metallic Rebukes. I cut all three Galvanic Blasts. I moved three Blood Chief's Thirst to the main and an additional Serum Visions to the main. Um, overall, uh, I ended up going 4-1. I lost to the Electro Dominance uh, Scourge. Uh, turns out that uh, turn one, um, you know, crashing footfalls into turn two crashing footfalls is pretty backbreaking, especially when you can't land your ensnaring bridge. Um, but overall, the deck felt great. Uh, I think that that extra consistency that Serum Visions brings to it is uh, is pretty solid. So if anybody's out there looking to play some Wurza, I would definitely recommend it. I'll have a link to the deck list in the show notes. Um, with the the meta moving so frequently, it's possible that you know uh, the meta has moved beyond this. I played this I think two weeks ago now, but um, this is probably where I would be looking to start uh, if I were going to play another uh, Wurza deck this week. Yeah, I'd love to take a look at your current list because that that's definitely something I want to uh, want to uh, dip my toe back into. Um, and in terms of dipping your toe back into things, uh, Arun, did you run a mentor deck again? Oh yeah. So this was, I don't know. I was definitely you know having fun with the Chalice, uh, the Chalice, Karn, Omnath, Kinnon deck, and that was, uh, it was I was enjoying it. But I saw. Uh, I was watching Squatchy's stream actually, I think a couple of days ago, and he was doing a dono deck by uh, I forget who, but it was this pretty terrible looking uh, Mardu build. But it had four, it had like three village rights, and that kind of popped on my radar again. As you know, like like you know, the number one rule is play good cards. The number two rule is don't play bad cards. And think about village rights it's a good card like there's no it's very unique one mana black draw two instant speed you have to sack a creature but you know there's ways around that and so that you know seems good with mentor to begin with and then start thinking about it a little bit more okay we want unearths like maybe we want some creatures with comments to play abilities oh you know like tide hollow scholar oh you know uro 
wait a minute, this deck sounds a little familiar. Yeah. And sure enough, I have. It sounds a lot like my old mentor deck. And it, it sounds like your mentor deck that has uh, removed the uh, Ren sixes, like I, I maybe was suggesting yeah. uh, on the previous uh, iteration. Um, and I breaks, I, breaks but I, my but heart. I applaud you, but I applaud you for finding the right card to innovate with. I really mean it because um, Village Rights seems like an ideal fit because this deck is really good at having one or two mana kicking around at the end of a turn. Um, obviously, Village Rights will trigger Mentor, which is one of your your win conditions. But here's the other thing: this is like a sort of tempo-y shell um, with a lot of creatures that your opponent feels obligated to kill. And so you can almost guarantee every single game you're going to have your opponent leveling uh, removal spells at your creatures, which turns your village rights into a uh, three for two rather than two for one. Um, or, yeah, yes, yeah, or two for two, yeah. So anyway, it uh, lets you take advantage of your opponent doing exactly what you expect them to do um, by, by uh, leveraging that into uh, extra advantage for you, and you're planning around that happening anyway. Besides the fact that you have the synergy of creating uh, Monastery Mentor creature tokens, um, and you have Tide Hollow Sculler in here. Um, Tide Hollow Sculler has the old templating where you could play Tide Hollow Sculler, put the trigger on the stack, and then sacrifice it in response to the trigger, and take one of the cards away forever. Um, and with Lurus of the Dream Dead in your deck, you can even do that out of your graveyard. So you got... A whole bunch of cool stuff happening here, bud. <laughs> but uh, to briefly go over the list, because uh, this is slightly modified from the one I... Just a couple of cards changed. So I have one Gilded Goose, three Kinnon, four Tide Hollow Skulder, four Emery, two Luris, three Mentor, four Uro. There's four Unearth, four Village Rites, and then two EE, four Bobble, four Amber, three Drums, uh, 19 lands with Minimo, and uh, you know, kind of supporting a four-color mana base. I went three, two in my league, I think I kind of mentioned this. My I had some pretty uh, heartbreaking losses that it could have easily been a 5-0 had I run a little better. But the deck felt kind of nuts. I mean, there were so many, like you said, just it's tempo-y, it's got synergy, mentor. I had this one, I remember this one game I was against Taxes where on turn three I casted mentor and triggered it three times and turn four I triggered it three times again and just like, you know, just crushed them. There's a the time... Uh, there's this one situation I was facing white taxes and I forget what it was, but essentially uh, my turn two play was tied was glimmer void into tide hollow sculler and they have two mana up and it's like, okay, you know, like, uh, or if they're, I think they were tapped out, but they had two mana and it's like, okay, like if I have path, if they have path, I can grab the path, you know, like apparition, just like flicker wisp. Like, I think, you know, they need two of these things in order to really blow me out. And so you know, so cast Skuller, it resolved, I see their hand, they've got three Apparition, uh, double path, and then a Flicker Wisp. And it's like, well, we are definitely gonna lose our, we're gonna lose our Glimmer Void. And we, I still crushed in that game though, it was nuts. But the whole, I mean that, you know, there's just so many cool lines you get where you can go turn two, turn one drum, turn two Skuller, uh, trigger on the stack, tap it to the drum to cast Village Right, sack your Skuller, draw two, you still steal the card from them. Uh, I had pretty crazy lines where, you know, you get to, uh, uh, you are, if you have an additional black two after that, you can unearth your Skuller, and so you get it back, you get the two-two body, you steal a second card. It was, the deck, deck felt nuts. And, you know, often, I also had many lines where I got to sacrifice, play Uro uh, with Uro, with, with, you can actually, with both of Uro's abilities on the stack, you can tap it for black to Springleaf Drum, 
and then you can village rights with the first ability still on the stack. And so you get to draw two cards and then you draw an additional one. And if you found a land in those extra two, you can put it on the battlefield too. It was this whole crazy tempo. Yeah, it was nuts. I love this deck. It was, it was a very nice change after playing the, you know, kind of clunky, just bomb, 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 Ken and Omnath decks. Well, we've been, we've been, yeah, we've been yammering on about, about prison stuff for a while, right? Yeah, let's uh, maybe let that go and take a quick break. And when we come back, we can uh, talk about some next steps for this Project Prison, which I believe involve taxes and hate bears. All right, welcome back. So, uh... Last week we focused primarily on more hard prison elements, uh, and this time we're going to keep going with the prison decks, but instead of hate rocks, we're going to focus on bears. Uh, so this week we will be brewing up some hate bears and taxes lists. Uh, the, the name of this deck, everyone knows it as Death and Taxes, uh, which I thought was attributed to uh, Oscar Wilde, as someone pointed out to me earlier earlier this week. But uh, doing the uh, research on the Wikipedia box, apparently the very first mention in print of this is from a play or a book called The Cobbler of Preston by Christopher Bullock. And the quote goes as such, "'Tis impossible to be sure of anything but death and taxes." Um, which sounds very very Shakespearean, so I'm sure this quote has been misattributed to Shakespeare as well. But we're going to do a real quick little segue here for before our history lesson in proper to something that really grinds my gears because I was in a streamer's stream earlier this uh, week and uh, they, they were mentioning the non-game nature of playing against death and taxes in, in, uh, in modern, as I'm sure that we will touch on. And they were saying like, well, you know, they played the Leon and Arbiter and had a handful of fetch lands and, and I wasn't able to play any magic. And, you know, you know, that's, that's death and taxes. Uh, I don't think that's exactly where that name came from. In fact, I think the name Death and Taxes doesn't really fit that deck all that well. This is one of the classic magic misnomers. There's a, We have a whole bunch of decks that have names for breakfast cereals. We have a whole bunch of names that have decks for any number of reasons. The deck name is not always 100% purely, clearly related to exactly what the deck's doing. And I think that that's just okay. Death and Taxes is not the most inevitable deck out there. And if you want to find any relation between the phrase and the meaning death and taxes and the actual play pattern of the deck, I guess you could say that once they set up their taxing effects, they're going to beat you to death with a 2-2 and there's nothing you could do about it. So at a certain point, you look at the board and go, the only thing more sure than my death to this Leonin Arbiter is death. Yeah, I I agree. I don't, I don't know... I, I never quite understood it. So I, I think it makes sense to look at um, where I, I believe Death and Taxes got its start, which was in Legacy. Um, so Taxes and Hate Bears decks in general have a pretty well-established place in the Legacy scene. Uh, one of the more premier Taxes-style decks is uh, Mono White, Death and Taxes. And uh, as we've said in past episode, uh, this deck really leans on the mana denial angle that comes from Wasteland and Rashadenport. Um, and it, it also leans on the Thalia Guardian of Thraben to add that taxing effect. So 
adding the, the one mana additional costs to non-creatures in addition to being able to lock down lands or destroy non-basics uh, is where all of that taxing comes from. But I think that you're right. The uh, the death is never quite assured when you're playing a bunch of, you know, two ones and one twos and maybe a beefy three three now and again. Uh, but you know, the lion's share of creatures in these decks are just dinky little things that have some, you know, enter the battlefield effect. Um, you know, Flicker Wisp is a cool card, uh, and a 3 one's pretty nice, but it turns out a one-toughness creature pretty easy to kill. Um, that said, the, the plucky little 2-1 first striker of Thalia can often bring it home, especially when she has a sword attached, so... Uh, but the other popular taxes-style deck is the uh, Green-White Maverick deck. Uh, Arun, maybe you could talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, so this is a legacy staple. Every legacy staple been established in legacy for pretty much ever. Even when I played back in, you know, like 2010 to 2012, maybe even 2008 to 2012. Uh, it was, you know, still everywhere and not too much has changed uh, it's pretty similar to the mono white build, but the big thing is that it uses a modern band card, Green Sun Zenith, as kind of, uh, you know, like it can be a Birds of Paradise to fetch your Arbiter, it can, or sorry, to fetch, uh, not Arbiter, but uh, Dryad, Dryad Arbor. Uh, you can grab Knight of the Reliquary. Uh, the really nice thing about it is you also, now you get to play the, you know, your classic hate bears like Gaddock Teague, for instance. Uh, Teague is amazing in Legacy, like just completely wrecks Storm and a whole bunch of other decks that just are unable to deal, that are unable to win until that card is off the battlefield. Uh, same, you can grab Scavenging Ooze, Knight of Autumn, Collector Oof as nice tutor targets. Uh, so it's, you know, like it's probably, I guess it's pretty equivalent to Mono White Taxes, but those are, between Maverick and Mono White Taxes, those are like the two big Taxes style decks in Legacy. The kind of interesting thing is that you know i think i think you'd even classify decks like goblins as a death and as a taxes like build because it's built it, the mono red version at least plays wasteland it plays rashad and ports you know it's got that mana denial aspect it's pretty you know just kind of just kind of shifting the colors and playing with that mana denial and a couple you know must answer creatures or else you're going to have a bad time like sure galactique is pretty good but you know if you can't answer that year if they go turn one lack if they go turn one lackey you don't have an answer and then they wasteland you you know that goblins deck is probably just going to have a field day while you're sitting there getting pummeled so it's, it's pretty you know it's cool and interesting and it's been established in legacy for a while a uh, quick mention that sky skyclave apparition once again even seeing legacy play in these lists and just totally yeah totally crushing it i think actually the showcase that you turn one of the Eternal Weekend Tournament was won by a Mono White Death in Texas list. I think it happened yesterday. Uh, their first place went to it with three main deck Scarclave Apparitions. So this, especially in Legacy, this archetype is a very, very real deck and very powerful. Uh, Zach, I see you had a note here about um, Standard and uh, some of these Death in Texas cards. When we look back to the throwback Standard Gauntlet, um, so Watsy put together this amazing thing uh, on Magic Online for a while. They called it the Throwback Standard Gauntlet, and they would pick all uh, eight of the best standard decks from a, a given standard. Um, and so through this, we have a, a, a little bit of a, a good historical source for seeing what was good at the time. 
And basically, none of the cards in any of these taxes shells that are kind of the, 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 the most important parts had any impact on their standard format at the time. Uh, and one of the conclusions is that, so this is going to be a very highly synergy-based deck, um, which is very much uh, prone to the eternal formats to which we, we like brewing in. Um, you need redundant and complementary effects in order for this strategy to work. Um, so, uh, just for anyone who's looking forward to playing taxes in standard, that is unlikely to happen unless we have another War of the Spark style set, um, where they, <laughs> for some reason, decided to print a ton of non-symmetrical taxes and prison style effects. Uh, I don't think that's likely to happen again anytime soon because there was plenty of negative feedback, um, on that axis. But, uh, these taxes effects, uh, work best, it seems, when you stack them up. Um, or in the case of Newcomer, uh, what is the name of the card? The Archon. Um, Archon of Emeria. Archon of Emeria. There we go. Uh, in the case of Archon of Emeria, it's like a reasonable card to be playing. Or um, there was the legendary creature from Ravnica, um, which is a 2-3 three for 3 with flying. One, one and a white. Tomic Distinguished Advocate. Tomic, yes. Tomic Distinguished Advocate. Um, the, those creatures are like on a reasonable uh, power and toughness size. They had flying, um, and they had a, a, a fringe playable effect as well. Arun, I just want to say I hate Archon of Ameria. Yeah, that card has wrecked. This card is so really good, times. right? It's like crazy. Like I can't play one card a turn. It's like, well, my decks all want to play a bunch of cards a turn, and especially since I don't have any much main deck interaction except for EE. You know, my only hope is to tide house card out of their hand, but I've lost so many games to that stupid card. It's like, well, I'm going to go nuts next turn. There's no way I can lose. Even if they apparition my Emery, you know, I'm still going to go nuts. And it's like, Scarlet, and then they cast the stupid Archon. It's like, well, we just ground to a halt now. It's pretty brutal. And I hate it. For clarity, Archon of Emeria is from uh, Zenikar Rising. It's two and a white for a 2-3 flyer. It says each player can't cast more than one spell each turn. And non-basic lands your opponent's control enter the battlefield tap. Awful card. So it's a uh, rule of law and uh, part of uh, Thalia Heretic Cathar. Don't play it in your decks. Not worth it. Well, you can play it in your <laughs> decks. This, this is the perfect week for it. Although it is not a bear as a 2-3. Uh, segwaying into modern, uh, we've seen a number of taxes style lists in the past, but it hasn't been until very recently with the, the printing of this Archon of Ameria and uh, Skyclave Apparition that we've recently seen a lot of success. So we went from taxes being maybe a tier three, tier four, you know, sort of fringe playable deck. You know, it, it has had a presence, but it wasn't really putting up great results to now we're seeing it topping um, challenges and, you know, making top eights and things like that. So uh, the new tools are definitely just what it needed to, uh, you know, sort of make that breakout success. Um, and these lists have always had uh, creature tools available. They just haven't quite lined up uh, perfectly. They, looking to the green-white side of things, we've even had tutors, maybe not quite as good as Green Sun's Zenith, um, but we have uh, cards like Finale of Devastation, Court of Calling, or even Eldritch Evolution, but we still haven't really seen high-level finishes from a Maverick style of deck. Um, and this is likely due to the, the lack of the utility lands like Wasteland, Port, and Caracas. 
Um, that said, again, with the, the new printing of these cards, we're seeing the mono white taxes lists on the rise, and I would not be surprised to see green white taxes or Maverick style lists uh, starting to, to pop up. You know, we've seen these um, Titan Vial decks that have sort of dropped the Aether Vials, but it's very possible that they could go in the other direction, you know, pick up the Aether Vials again, maybe drop the Primeval Titans or, or cut back on that a little bit, or, or maybe just play all of them. Um, Primeval Titan is obviously a very powerful card in modern, and a lot of these uh, hate bears are also very powerful, so maybe the combination of those together could be just what these decks are looking for. Um, yeah, what are you guys' thoughts on on brewing up uh, some hate bears or taxes style decks? Uh, you know, I think your comparison of Green White Titan to Maverick uh, is a really good comparison. I think it kind of hits the nail on the head. The, you know, it's kind of mid-range style deck with this big finish. They have Vile plus Elad plus Eldamri's Call to get their Silver the Tutor targets. I've actually lost to this deck because they went Eldamri's Call for that stupid Archon of Ameria. And that, you know, hate that, hate that. Uh, the thing is, in mod, the big difference between Modern and Legacy is that one of the best endgames in Modern right now is Field of the Dead. So it makes complete sense for this green-white deck to focus on prime time into field as this inevitable endgame engine. Until field gets banned or something else comes along, I don't think, you know, it's worth pursuing any other sort of endgame if you're in those colors. As you know, we've even seen the four-color Uro Omnath decks are willing to play Field of Ruin and Field of the Dead. Uh, that's how powerful these cards are, even in your four-color piles. But I, I think that's a, you know, a really good observation on your part. Uh, like I, you know, I've always been fascinated by Hate Bears. Last week I proposed a Neoform list, uh, I didn't take that out, I'm still interested in it. The mana base, you know, I looked at the mana base and I screamed internally, I don't know what I was thinking. Uh, I just need to do fetch shocks. I had like reflecting pools and all these golden creature lands and none of the, my creatures shared creature types. Uh, so that, that was, you know, I'm probably just going to do fetch shocks and hope it gets there. And I think it'll be interesting, you know, just... What if the concept is if we can turn two or turn three, get out any hate bear we want against any deck, you know, like, is that going to be enough to get it? And I don't know, but I think it'll be an interesting concept and hypothesis to test. The other and probably the only other hate bear list I'm going to look at is I've always been really interested. A while back, there was this deck making waves called Blue Steel that is kind of like blue stompy beatdown. It didn't play Chalice, but it played... Artificer's Assistant, and I think it was based on Grand Architect, and then this other card that gives all your artifacts improvise. And Grand Architect is one blue blue for two two, tap an untapped blue creature you control to add two colorless. And it played Lodestone Golems, and you know, it's a whole bunch of, I think, Phyrexian Revokers, and just a, you know, kind of like this mono blue beat you down deck while slightly taxing you. It was a pretty interesting concept. You know, Lovestone Golem is a complete house, honestly. That card is nuts. The big problem with these style lists is, you know, Lightning Bolt completely wrecks you. And especially, uh, however, Welding Jar, kind of taking some uh, tech from, you know, War Prison, your list, and also uh, Hardened Scales, because I hate that deck too. Uh, Welding Jar always seemed really, really good to me, especially when the opponent played it. And I could never really figure out why. Like, yeah, sure, they get to save their you know good old ravager obviously that's great for them but it feels especially brutal like when someone welding jars something and i realize now that it's because 
your opponent is welding jar is mana advantage, where if they spend one mana to kill your thing and you welding jar to regenerate it, your welding jar was free, but it caught their fatal push of bolt costed them one mana. So you're actually going up on mana, which is you know pretty. It's one of the reasons why fatal pushing a thought knots here is so good for you. You're just getting, you're making up, you're getting this huge mana tempo advantage. So going on that end, you know, I'm kind of interested in this like mono blue taxes list that, you know, I want to power out Lone Stone Golems early. Uh, to do that, there's kind of a couple ways I'm thinking. The level zero way is Memnite Ornithopter and Springleaf Drum, which is not great because now you're filling your deck with garbage. <laughs> But, uh, you know, then also you can add, I would do one, I know the deck needs to have four Phyrexian Revoker, four Emery, and four Lodestone Golem. But Revoker dies to a light sneeze. However, maybe even with four Welding Jars and Emery along, you know, it'll help you pair out your early Emery's. It'll enable your Revokers to survive. Even, like, if you can get a, you know, turn two, turn three Lodestone Golem down with a Welding Jar out, you've got a 5-3 beater. Their stuff is taxed. And, you know, you have a free regeneration shield in addition while you're going up on mana because you're going to be extra taxed. So this, you know, sounds pretty interesting to me. Sadly, Revoker is interesting. It can't hit lands. So, you know, that's, that's unfortunate. However, you can get mana abilities on non-lands. So, like Lotus Blooms, Pentad Prisms, you know, Spike Feeder. It's got a... Yeah, it it's, uh, hits Planeswalkers too, you know, to probably against the Sahili deck. So it's pretty you know, interesting, this kind of thing. And the nice thing about this too is now you can run Mystic Forge and then maybe even some Forsaken Monuments as kind of your end goal. Because if you're gonna, if you're gonna fill your deck with Memnites and Ornithopters, you know, like, if you can do that and then if you can go like turn three Lowstrom Golem into turn four Forbidden, uh, a Forbidden Monument. I mean, you know, now you've got a whole bunch of three threes and two four Flyings and you're gaining a bunch of life and you've got a bunch of mana. So this is, those are the two lists that I'm going to start out with. You know, they're still not super fleshed out yet. I don't think I'm going to put Urza in the blue list, but, you know, maybe I'll add one up just for fun of, to, for old time's sake and see what happens. But those, I'm curious to see, you know, like, what your, what each of your ideas are. Because we obviously, I don't think we just want to pursue, like, a boring mono white taxes list, you know. We want, we want to innovate and make some cool stuff. So I'm very curious to see uh, what thoughts each of you have. Yeah, for sure. I actually had a similar idea. I was looking at um, going Esper, playing Emery, Tide Hollow Scholar, Aethersworn Canonist, um, Lazav, Unearth, mm -hmm. uh, and I actually slapped something together and uh, just played some practice games with it the other night. Um, my computer is actually in a bad way right now, so I, I, I can't commit to a league because things freeze and crash too often. Um, but I did manage to get through a couple of games, and... The deck felt pretty good. I actually slipped in uh, three Thopter Foundries and one Sword of the Meek just to have that extra little grind angle. Um, but the the combination of Thopter Foundry and Tide Hollow Scholar and Emery was sweet. Just being able to <laughs> sacrifice the Tide Hollow Scholar with the, the trigger on the stack, getting a Thopter out of it, gaining a life, you know, the deck was really really well positioned for grinding um lazav was an all-star because emery can mill whatever creature you want into the yard and then lazav can copy it lazav uh ended up being copies you know uh six seven and eight of or uh five six seven 
five through eight <laughs> uh, of Emery for me, and it was it was good. Um, I think that there needs to be some more tuning, but I think that you know your blue steel idea is uh, spot on. I could see that playing out really well. Um, I also you know. Phyrexian Revoker is a sweet card, and I think a lot of people are used to the Pithing Needle effect, but they're not used to the Revoker being able to hit mana abilities, and that can be really relevant sometimes. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think you're onto something there. I uh, am definitely planning on poking around that space as well, and I really like Forsaken Monument. I have played with that in the Faithless Brewing Community League a bunch, and anytime I've managed to get that down, especially with a Mystic Forge, it's just totally, totally off the rails. I mean, I was playing against Cave Dan in one of my matches in, I think, Pioneer. And I was at like two life or something, and I was way behind on board. And I land a monument and a, a, <laughs> a Mystic Forge. And then the next thing I know, I'm at like 36 life. And just have a bunch of crappy artifacts, but all of them are, you know, getting plus two, plus two, and it, it just it very quickly turned around. And he was kind of like, "Uh, yeah, I don't think I can come back from this." Okay, <laughs> so I will be very interested to hear how that one turns out. Um, the other stuff I'm interested in is actually looking at the uh, green-white space a little bit. I like Abzan. Um, you know, uh, as with my Mardu deck, I'm sure that I will get in a game or a, a you know a, a league and a series of matches and find that this just takes an incredibly <laughs> long time and grinds really hard, but may not be good enough. Um, but you know, I was thinking maybe you could play around with uh, Tide Hollow Sculler again, try out the new Archon. Um, maybe Fiend Artisan mm. to act as a tutor and uh, a big threat. You know, I think that that card was obviously very hyped before it came out. It saw a tiny little bit of play and then sort of fell off the face of the planet. I have not seen anything with Fiend Artisan. So I would definitely like to, you know, give it a, an opportunity to shine again. And Ataxa's Stylist seems like a really good home for it. How about you, Zach? Well, I'm just popping up, and I looked at Yasharn, Implacable Earth, <laughs> because, you know, we mentioned it before, and uh, I, I got to get the hate bore. So I think I, I want to see if we can dig up uh, the green-white taxes list um, and see what, what's worth pursuing in that. But I, I, I have to go to the root first. I got to play the, the mono-white taxes deck first, mm -hmm. and not to innovate, but just to see what's going yep, on yep. with that one. Um, the one thing I will say is that Taxes is one of many, 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 many decks that I would never, ever want to play against someone in paper because I could not look my opponent in the face while playing this kind of deck against them because just just the, the seeing the, the tap land on turn one, playing a lean in Arbiter and seeing your opponent play a fetch land on turn two is just... It's just gut-wrenching because usually I'm on that side of the table and I just don't know if I could do that to people in person. Like, just like with my Turbo Prison deck, I would never be able to play that deck in person and actually do that to another human being and watch them suffer through that. Um, that said, thanks to MPGO, I can indulge in this kind of uh, depravity. Um, <laughs> and uh, in terms of other styles of decks, uh, I did mention on one of my uh, appearances on Faithless Brewing that there was a sort of blue-white taxes deck I'm interested in, playing uh, Thalia uh, and teaming up with uh, other gal pal rock star of uh, legacy formats, uh, occasionally, Lavinia, um, Azorius Renegade. So uh, that's uh, white and a blue for a 2-2 human legend, 
and uh, she has two different abilities. One that entirely prevents your opponent from playing non-creature spells with converted mana cost greater than the number of lands they control. Um, it's a weird, weird line of text, but occasionally relevant in modern. And then uh, on top... Yeah, exactly. And on top of that, you have um, the other line of text, which just straight up counters anything that, that they didn't spend mana on. So this includes um, suspend spells and cards that cost zero mana. Um, so she definitely has some niche applications in modern as well. Um, this deck's probably, almost all of these decks are probably going to feature Aether Vials. Um, there's just a lot of flex slots. Uh, do you play Stoneforge Mystic or don't you? Uh, what level of removal do you play? Uh, the blue-white deck has the potential to have a heavy legendary theme because you can play uh, Namiba? Nambia? Nambi, there we go. Not, not, not a country. Uh, yeah, Nambi. Uh, Teferi's daughter, but the uh, the good one, not the uh, Planeswalker deck version. Uh, Niambi allows you to bounce uh, another target creature you control to your to your hand, and you gain life. Um, so she she lets you scoop your prison pieces out of danger. Because one of the things about prison decks and taxes decks in general is a lot of your game playing, you're kind of assembling this um, this house of cards, um, or let's say uh, you're building this house of cards around your opponent. Um, that's kind of walling them in and uh, if they're able to topple one piece all of a sudden sometimes they're able to crack their way through and just crush you um, so being able to rescue your hate piece um, usually you do that with flicker wisp or uh, restoration angel but in this case we might be able to uh, use niambi and, and lean into our legend theme a little bit um, there's also baron which i mentioned on that podcast um, who also received a new printing in core 20 uh, 21, which is uh, one blue blue for a 2-2. Two, two. When it enters the battlefield, you can return up to one other creature, target creature or planeswalker to its owner's hand. And at the beginning of your end step, if a permanent was put into your hand from the battlefield, you can draw a card. So, again, able to bounce one of your opponent's things or your own thing. And if you bounce your own thing, you get to draw a card. Um, so it's kind of neat in that way. So I, th I think there's some kind of potential there. I have no idea exactly what that's going to look like. So for me, mono white, white green, white blue, maybe Bant, and uh, that's the general area of taxes that I'm going to uh, perhaps pursue. Um, I think there's definitely something to find there, and I definitely want to find a way to play Lavinia and Force of Negation. I don't know why, but that's just like there's something about that combination that just really appeals to me in horribly punishing unfair decks. Wait, you mean you mean Spell Queller? Uh, which I'd love to do. Yeah, maybe Spell Queller. Play Spell, spell Queller. Spell Queller combos with Lavinia. Um, because if they kill your Spell Queller, then uh, the spell coming off the stack, they don't spend mana for it. So she will counter that. So, um, yeah, good synergy there. So, yeah, that, thank you, thank you, Arun. I probably would have missed that yeah. one on my first draft. I mean, well, I'm, you know, I'm actually very excited to see where you take the blue white taxes. I've thought about you know, this for a long time. Also, I being a lover of. Mox, Amber, Kinnon, all these legendary shells. Niambi has always mm -hmm. been in the back of my head. I try to shoehorn Niambi into every one of these decks that I can because the synergy with, uh, well, A, I think Niambi's got an amazing synergy with Uro. You know, you can Uro trigger ability on the stack. You can fashion Niambi, return Uro uh, before you sacrifice it, gain six life, uh, which is pretty sweet. But also being able to pitch mm -hmm. your extra Ambers with your extra dual legends and drawing two cards as a nice mana sink has always been really fascinating to me and something that I wanted to do, but not something that I've ever managed to get around to yet. So I'm very excited to see where your blue-white uh, direction takes you.
And I think you had a Urian version of this, did you not? Oh, yeah, and, and uh, it was bad. Urian, sure, maybe, but maybe there's a way to tweak it, and I love Urian anyway, so I'm, I'm always uh, excited for the excuse. And, and two of the things with Urian is, one, playing Urian with Aether Vials. Awesome, oh, hell yeah. Um, because all of a sudden you kind of get to take advantage of almost the old way that um, the companions worked, where if you spend three mana, you put the Urian into your hand, and then if you have an Aether Vial on five, you just drop <laughs> it right in. Um uh, one of our uh, friendly uh, Faithless Brewing uh, server celebrities, Mr. Ryeb, uh, did this multiple times uh, after the companion change with different uh, Urza decks. So he had Urza Vile Urian decks, um, and he was exploring those in a bunch of different forms. None of them panned out particularly well, but that doesn't mean that it won't be fun and exciting to try them in this direction. So uh, I, while you say that deck was bad, perhaps there is a way to make it more functional. Um, now, that said, usually these taxes decks, you don't have infinite amount of redundancy on effects, and any deck that's playing Aether Vial probably doesn't want to be an 80-card deck, but that's not going to stop me from trying. Oh, yeah. Uh, if you're leaning into the Legends thing, can I interest you at all in Riss the Redeemed? So what this is uh, a hybrid, a hybrid green-white mana for... Um, an elf oh, warrior, I believe. I think yeah. it's a one one. Yeah. But it is a legend. So that enables your Mox Amber on turn one. And actually, so in these taxes decks, one of the things is you can't play a lot of spells, uh, and you often don't have a lot of mana sinks for, for excess mana. But Riss has two activated abilities. One makes uh elf tokens, and the other is this crazy ability that I would love to exploit sometime. It is um, effectively a better version of Populate. So what Populate does is allows you to copy a, a creature token that you have, but this does one better, and it will copy every creature token that you have. So if you have a way to pump out a bunch of tokens, um, let's say you were playing something, that, you know, a Field of the Dead even, you can then activate the risk ability and copy all of those tokens. Um, and so you can get some really, really explosive board states if you have the mana to sync. Now, I don't know if this is the right shell for that, but if you're leaning into the legends angle, it is an early enabler for your legends, and uh, it does have a useful mana sync ability if you you know you land a Thalia or whatever, and like are looking for things to do with your your excess mana. And let's not forget uh, participant in the very first five O posted with uh, Song of Creation Kinnon, uh, Ovaya Pashiri from uh, Kaladesh. Oh, so bad. And here's the best part. <laughs> and here's the best part. No, no, because she's a one-two. So she survives Lavadart and uh, well, has go. a very similar mana sync. Yep. So um, yeah, you definitely have some options uh, there as well. So yeah, I mean, yeah, there's definitely some things you can explore. You can even be playing copies of Noble Hierarch. So if you're if you're if you're gonna expand into Bant, uh, Riss obviously allows you to stay as just blue white. So yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of cards. One of the things that I think um, should be a message from this podcast to everybody out there, and I, I haven't heard a lot of. Um, I don't think there's a lot of brewing focused podcasts out there, other than our wonderful. Um, friends at Faithless Brewing, who I think inspired all of us to be here today. Um, so big shout out to Faithless Brewing as always. But one of the things I, I would really like to highlight is that 
when you are out there in the magic populace and you are a player of most levels and you maybe probably spend a lot of your time net decking and or creating small tweaks on uh, lists that already exist. It's weird and scary sometimes to think of trying to, to like really strip things down to nothing and build it up from the bottom. And maybe you think like I once did that like if there is a good idea out there, it's probably been found, explored, and discarded. Because, you know, I mean, there's so many smart people out there brewing. Um, but as Jiggy and I found out when we went into these cannon shells, the, like a lot of these cards were sitting around and nobody was making them uh, work in, in some of the formations that we found. Um, if you look at the history of standard formats, there are sometimes decks that get referred to as like the, the, the late bloomers or the late discoveries where like three months into a standard format, right before it rotates, someone finally figures out a correct configuration and the correct home for uh, one or two or three cards. Um, so, you know, don't be afraid to get out there and get your hands messy and burn some tickets, folks, because the rewards are really, really amazing. And if you just like playing Magic just to play it, that's cool too. But uh, let me tell you, if you think you have an idea for a deck, go explore it. Go nuts. Burn those tickets and just take some notes and try to learn something, you know? Yeah, I think this is something actually I, I considered even bringing up as a topic, but the idea of optimal is very difficult in such a large card pool. You know, we see quote unquote optimal decks shake out in, in formats like standard because they have a lot less going on. But when you're talking about modern, there is such a breadth of cards and interactions that there is no such thing as a singularly optimal deck. Um, there is sort of what is known as, you know, there, there are multiple optimal points. And so um, this is something that comes up. Uh, uh, my background is in, in computer science. I do a lot of distributed systems stuff and, and looking for efficiencies and optimality. And so oftentimes when we're talking about um, optimizing, you're picking something that you want to optimize for. And it's possible that there are multiple optimums and so, you know, I think that magic is very similar where it's possible to find multiple optimums. And just because people have sort of honed in on certain interactions or certain things doesn't mean that the other things aren't also optimum. They're just not seeing play. Right. And I think that part of that is the metagame tends to be a little bit self-fulfilling. People see popular decks <laughs> being played and so they pick them up and that makes them more popular. And I think that some of that is just, like you said, maybe a fear of exploration. But, you know, I think that it's uh, that message that just because you don't see it happening doesn't mean that it's bad is a very important message to convey. Yeah. I mean, uh, people have written uh, wonderful article articles to this effect. Um, Ghost Dad um, was a standard deck at one point. And there's a wonderful article that someone wrote about it in that I, I cannot remember, but if we do find it, we'll throw it in the show notes. And basically what they were saying is somebody came up with this deck, did well with it once, and then it became popular. And the popularity of it became a self-fulfilling prophecy of people would always see it in these standard top eights. And they would assume it was because it was good. And the reason was, no, it's because the sample size is really big. There's a lot of people playing the deck. And by, by sheer numbers, someone has to top eight with it. Um, I know in the recent past for Legacy, um, it, it was the case that when Paper Legacy play 
was a much larger percentage of um, how Legacy was being played. Death and Taxes, which is funny that we're talking about it today, was one of the most popular decks. But that's because it was one of the most competitive decks that was by far the cheapest because it contained something like 16 basic planes um, compared to a lot of the mana bases otherwise in Legacy where you will be forking over two to $3,000 for your dual lands. Um, so there, there's, there's, there's a lot of factors um, that, that can, uh, can go into things like that. But just because something is, uh, is doing well does not necessarily mean it's the most optimal. As you can have lots of yeah so i want to you know jump in on this brewing train uh definitely seconding what you both have had about the joy of brewing and you know burning those tickets like having been brewing an absurd amount recently like starting with the definitely so the success that was attributed i think definitely a lot of luck with the original temer kinnon shells uh, where i just drew really well and really hot and that kind of started everything off uh, but you know brewing all these different especially when you start focusing on a single shell and like taking different versions of it you i don't think i've learned so much about magic and so much about cards and just you know even gameplay in general just brewing all these kin and shells and all about synergy and you know seeing what cards work together it's come to a point where you know like i can just brew up a list and then i'll just leave it for a little bit uh and then i'll go back to it and i'll see like oh, i'll come up with it this idea comes to me and i'll go check my old list and i have something pretty similar already like okay sweet i can just go build on this but it's you know it's really enjoyable to play especially if your deck is a little bit out of left field you know just like turn one watery grave into chromatic sphere like your opponents you know their eyebrows raise and like what are they gonna do like there's a there's a very real advantage when your opponent has no idea what the hell you're doing like, it's great, you know, you can just see it, or, you know, with the Arayo build, you know, like, turn one, uh, Island, Springleaf Drum, you know, your opponent's, like, Mox Amber, like, okay, they kind of know what's up, uh, but then, you know, you turn to flip Arayo, like, you know, maybe they have a Bolt in hand, but they go turn one Soul Scar Mage, and then turn two, you jam Arayo, and you flip it, and it's almost game over. I do, you know, this is, you know, a little pretty late, but I do want to mention that the best thing about playing Arayo on Magic Online is that when you flip it in the game log, it gives you a little exclamation point and it says, Arayo has flipped exclamation point. And it is. We gotta, we gotta find more I flip don't know cards. Why they added that's it. all it is. We gotta play. Can I interest you yeah. in a Zoomy Grave Robber? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, don't, don't. Let's maybe, maybe, maybe one day, but not today. I not, love not that today. card so much. Well, I think we've done enough philosophizing here, uh, if I may. I'm no scientician. Um, <laughs> So before we get out of here for uh, another little while, I think it's time for some more bumps and dumps. So uh, Brian down there, uh, you got any got any bumps? Got any dumps for this wonderful wonderful episode? Uh, you know, I'm I'm actually pretty lacking. I've been kind of out of touch with things. Um, I guess. I'll throw some bumps out to Arnold, California. Took a little trip this last week. Um, went into the Stanislaus National Forest. Uh, stayed in a cabin there. Um, there was a lot of sap dripping from the trees. It was very messy, but it was otherwise a very enjoyable experience. Um, you know, dog had a good time. She was nice and chill for a change. Uh, kid had a good time. I had a good time. Wife had a good time. So, and I actually, I got to play a little bit of paper magic with a friend that I haven't seen since January. Nice. So that was, that was really what awesome. Deck? Uh, what deck? What, what were you flinging? 
I played a little bit of Green Tron because I recently finished it in paper with uh, some of the reprints. I played um, a little bit of Dredge, also just finished that in paper because of reprints. Uh, and those were the only decks we managed to get through. I had also brought uh, Wurzo with me, um, but you know, just didn't quite have time to get through as much as we wanted. And he was on a Mardu Shadow that is circa one year ago. I got no dumps this week, so how about you? Sacrifice it, unearth it, get another shadow. It's like not going well. You know, I also, I don't have any dumps. You know, things are going pretty well. All things considered, uh, bumps, I guess two big bumps. One is uh, voting. You know, if you're in the U.S., this election is incredibly important. Uh, Make sure you vote if you're able to. Like this is, you know, I don't think it can be stressed enough how important voting in this election is. So if you're on the fence or whatever, like you just, you need to vote and make the time for it because a lot there's a lot at stake and uh also bumps are just cooking in general you know i've been really cooking a lot and there's been a bunch of recipes i've seen for i've you know i have these cookbooks i've had for a while they have these recipes that looked amazing that i haven't yet like oh i'm gonna make that one day gonna make that one day and i decided recently like i'm just gonna start making them so i've made uh rasmalai which is this you know like indian dessert that's it's kind of like cottage or it's like uh what's the it's just they're like kind of like cheese dumplings and that creamy milk sauce that takes forever but it's so good and my mom used to make it all the time she actually gave me the recipe for it i made deep fried whole fish with uh sweet and sour chili sauce that was you know amazing i made the deep fried apple pie uh, a couple weeks ago that turned out really well it was delicious you know made a couple mistakes but i learned how to you know i know what to do this time so i'm gonna be making that again hopefully perfect this like today and yeah and i'm just pretty you know it's very satisfying just challenging these uh, tricky, you know, dishes. And I've been really enjoying it. And it's been, you know, just like brewing. Just like the more cooking I do, just like I'm much, you know, it's much makes me much happier. I feel like I've spent my time well. And it's just very satisfying. Deep, deep fried apple pies sound like uh, the artisan handcrafted version of um, like the McDonald's apple pies. And that just sounds like everything I want in the world because those things are just i don't know i don't want to have one because it'll spoil the memory but in my uh, mind they are so freaking good they are they are i mean the it's a little off topic but it is heartbreaking that mcdonald's used to deep fry their apple pies but now they bake them and this oh, is very oh. upsetting to me they're still good but like they used to be insane uh, so you definitely i would recommend not eating one because you're going to be a little disappointed out of their baked uh, but that, these will okay. be deep yeah. fried and yeah, no, I'll, I'll uh Oh yeah, I'll just stow that, stow that need for now. <laughs> All right, what about you, Zach? Any bumps? Any dumps? Yeah, you know what? Uh, big, big bumps to uh, understanding the scientific method um, and using it for all sorts of cooking experiments that I'm going to be doing. Uh, every time that I come up with a recipe that I like, once I've sort of um, gotten the basic idea of it, now I've gotten to the point where I'll I'll create an ingredient and I'll split it into you know three different uh, portions so that I can test each of them individually, trying to explore different things. And so uh, you know, learning different techniques um, for manipulating your ingredients um, so that your final result is different, and uh, doing it in a repeatable way, you know, recording all your data as you go along. Um, so that you can uh, get something that you can have consistent results with. I mean, this is, uh, it's, it's really fun to uh, just be doing some culinary science and you get to eat the result, uh, or in this case, drink <laughs> the result at the end of it is, uh, is super, super fun. 
So uh, it's, it's just like brewing. You, you got to keep, uh, you know, abreast of all the different options. You got to know all the different cards that you could be putting into the deck and then um, try to control the variables. And one of the hard things about Magic, of course, is that... Um, that, that uh, when you actually play the matches out, you know, there's so many variables that it's very, very difficult to come to a conclusion. Whereas it is nice to take a break with a hobby where you can get good, consistent, clear, repeatable results. And so <laughs> when you want to make your Earl Grey Martini uh, with a second batch, all you got to do is follow the ingredients, follow the timings, use the right measurements and you're done. Like it comes out perfectly every single time you get exactly the right results. And there is a, a real satisfaction in doing that. And then, um, when you're, when you're pursuing new things, if you follow that same pattern, when you finally do get something you love, you know that you can repeat it. So, uh, make sure to take notes, people don't do bad science. I know that consistency is important, but you really sold me with the ability to eat your results. Because I've tried oh, yeah. that, and like <laughs> eating my successes in magic has not gone well. But eating no, my successes no. in cooking, much better. Yes, yes. Definitely. No, and it's one of, one of the things <laughs> I've always loved about cooking, too. Is, uh, it's so good. Anyway, uh, so uh, I guess we will be back in uh, about two weeks with some results from uh, all sorts of taxes shells. So uh, thanks for being with me, guys, and uh, coming together consistently. Oh, yeah. This is a lot and, of fun. Uh, I'll see you. I'll see you around the Discord as we uh, flail our way through these uh, taxes decks. Sounds like a plan. Sounds good, guys. Take care. Catch you later. Thanks for listening to episode four of the Serum Visions podcast. If you like what we do and want to get in touch with us, you can find us at twitter.com slash serumvisionsmtg, email us at serumvisionspod at gmail.com, or join us on Discord at the link in the episode description of your podcast player or on serumvisions.podbean.com. Sorry, dog. Time to have this toy. Sorry, dog. Just wait a moment.